We Thought About Games, the podcast where games are looked at historically, fondly, and critically. Tonight we're going to discuss Resident Evil Code Veronica. Joining me are... Oh, wait, I didn't introduce myself last time. I'm not going to forget it this time. I'm Sid Menon. Hi, Sid. Hey. <laughs> joining me are Goggleor. Hi there. And Zen Scissors. What's up, people? Alright, uh, Zen, you want to get started with the development history of Code Veronica? Alright, from the Resident Evil wiki. Resident Evil Code Veronica was in development from 1998 to 2000, with work continuing on for another year to release the complete version. It started development as Biohazard 3, or Resident Evil 3, and initially featured Jill Valentine as the protagonist in conceptual stages. However, things were changed when Sony wanted a last numbered Resident Evil game on the PlayStation. This resulted in Resident Evil 3 being named to Code Veronica, and Resident Evil Gaiden, a spin-off featuring Hunk on a cruise ship, not to be confused with the uh, Game Boy Color title, was renamed to Resident Evil 3 Nemesis, starring Jill instead of Hunk. The game itself was officially announced by Yoshiki Okamoto at the New Challenge Conference in October that year. The announcement teaser demonstrated the new camera system in 3D environments. A playable demo was featured in Fall 1999's uh, Tokyo Game Show. And that's it for uh, Code Veronica. Next up is a section on Code Veronica X. Basically the version that's kind of the definitive version now. So there's two versions. Yeah, the one that came out a year after the original release was called Biohazard uh, Complete Edition or Resident Evil Complete Edition. That added some extra cutscenes yeah. and a couple of changes to the game, uh, which we'll discuss when they come up, because they're, in the big picture, pretty minor. But the initial release was on the Dreamcast, and I promise the next episode won't be about a game that debuted on the Dreamcast. Oh, but Dreamcast games are great. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dreamcast. When, when's the Blue Stinger episode coming? <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Classic. I think people's minds are pretty made up about Blue Stinger. So... The way it starts, well, there's an attract cutscene at the beginning, which is actually one of the first changes I noticed, because the original Dreamcast version shows a bunch of stuff from across the game to get you excited. There's like a shot of an axe swinging and uh, someone saying, I'm Alexia Ashford, pointing a gun at Claire. And then there's this totally cool dude shooting two gold handguns at something. Who's this badass? Well, it's Chris, right? It's totally going to be Chris, because he's in this game. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yep. <laughs> He's on the cover. Actually, was he on the cover for the Dreamcast? Version? Yeah, he was. All right. And the title screen. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's the big attraction of this game is after all these games, I mean, Resident Evil 1 introduced Chris and then 2 introduces Sister Claire, they're finally going to be together in one game at some point. So that's the first change. And then the re-release, for some reason, it's just stuff from the opening cutscene when you start the game. So that's what you see next. Yeah. Yeah. Also... <laughs> And this is something that I think is kind of... Oh, it's July 4th happening outside. Whatever. Deal. You have uh, fun audio balancing. <laughs> a gore warning that Capcom games used to have all the time? I don't know that they have it so much. They also don't release that much these days that has it. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it has um, blood on a scene that actually in-game doesn't have it. I mean, there's gore in the game, so that's true, but they advertised it with a lie. Hmm. Move on to the opening cutscene, then, once you start the game. Goggle, you want to run down what happens there? Well, I'm assuming it is the same as in the X version, because that is the only version I have played. I will get yeah, that just... right out there. <laughs> this is off the top of my head, I'm not looking at the Resident Evil wiki. <laughs> uh, but No, that's my job. Claire 
Redfield is looking for her brother, Chris Redfield, as she was in Resident Evil 2. She has broken into, I believe it is the Paris facility of Umbrella Pharmaceutical, and is just being chased by a bunch of dudes with guns, and then a helicopter shows up and shoots at her, and there's a lot of action shots, and it blows up like half the floor they're on with Gatling yep. guns. And then she goes into a room that has like a staircase in it, and more dudes with guns. <laughs> and she's like, okay, cool, I'm gonna freeze, except not really, because she does like the first. I, I would call it the first goofy as shit thing in a Resident Evil game, where she drops the gun and then dives down faster than gravity and, like, grabs the gun, shoots a tank of flammable gas of some sort behind the guys and kills, like, a dozen non-zombie people. <laughs> just regular people who were probably just doing their job. And then... Rodrigo, who we don't know his name yet, shows up and actually arrests her. Yeah. Probably could have just saved themselves the trouble and shot Claire if they were okay with Claire getting shot by a helicopter. Yeah, probably. Really didn't have any communication there. Well, there's the scene before uh, she's in the Paris facility, because it's like a flashback, uh, is she's been arrested by Umbrellas on a helicopter, taking her to Rockford Island, which is Umbrellas' own prison island complex and they unhood her tell her her prisoner id number and then knock her out in the most unnecessary thing in the intro short of the the helicopter <laughs> yeah once all that's done claire wakes up in her cell and there's a bunch of explosions and the light in her cell goes out and a dude walks up to her cell and this is when the interaction in the game starts. Well, it opens up the menu automatically because she says she has a hard time seeing, and you have to equip her lighter. And this, I think, was mostly to show off that, uh, unlike other Resident Evil games where the environments were all pre-rendered, like 2D, uh, with like a sort of fake 3D effect on them, these are actually polygonal environments. Like, the camera moves through them, they react to light. Yes, there is actual lighting, which is why the very first thing they make you do is use a fucking lighter to look around. Yeah, <laughs> yeah and also they brought back from the new one, you can look at your inventory items and spin them around. Oh boy, did they. <laughs> God, that's I crazy. mean, they did it in the first one, because 3D is cool, and then they did it again in this one, so that you could look at details and Solve puzzles. Lockpick cases. The 3D was way cooler back then. Like, oh, look <laughs> what we can do! Yeah, this is the first one with the new 3D. You better 3D. Claire has an actual face, and her mouth moves. As you'll see, like, when you flick open the lighter, she's surprised that it's Rodrigo in front of her, even though you can totally tell it's him in the dark. So this is probably the first Resident Evil where, in in-game cutscene, you see characters' mouths moving, they're emoting. It was a pretty big leap at the time. I remember uh, being pretty blown away. Well, it's the first one that's not on the PlayStation 1. Yeah. So that yeah. would explain it, because the PlayStation 1 looks like garbage. That was the days of gesture talking. <laughs> yeah, characters don't gesticulate wildly so much in in this one, because, you know, you can see them saying things and expressing. Yeah, so then he lets you out of the cell, because he says the island's under attack, and this whole place is finished, and you'll probably not escape anyway, so whatever and he's out of some medicine. 
and he's upset about that. Oh, and he's, he's been shot, he's bleeding. And he's just really surly. There's a knife on the desk, which in most Resident Evil games, you shouldn't even really bother getting, because it's terrible. It's more efficient to run away, and if you don't have enough ammo, then you failed. But this knife is really good. You can almost beat the whole game. I think you actually can beat the whole game with this knife. I would doubt that, considering some of the boss fights in this game. But I don't think it's as stacked against you as, like, the first Resident Evil, where it takes, like, 31 fucking shanks to kill a crimson head. Like, that shit is impossible. Yeah. So, yeah, there's not much else to do in this room. You can get out, and there's, like, a save point immediately. Um, you still need to have ink ribbons uh, and use them on a typewriter to save your game. Another thing they change in the game is when your character is scared, there'll be, like, a slower sequence of, like, she'll look at the stairs and you'll hear her heart pounding, and then she'll slowly climb up the stairs. Because if you die in the scene following that, they needed it to be longer and more annoying to reload. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's one or two... There's two sequences where that, that worked, and I actually was kind of scared, I guess, but also I was, like, in middle school, keep that in mind, when I played this as my first horror game. Yeah. It was my first M-rated game, because mm, my dad was yeah, like... Same. Fuck, I don't care if you shoot zombies, they're zombies. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how my brother pulled this one over on my parents. I think he got it, like, he had some money on hand from my parents and then was out with another friend's parents at the game store and got it. Yeah, so once you get up there, you can see that, yeah, the island is pretty messed up. There's like an exploded jeep in a graveyard. I think it came through the wall. It's the delivery truck, right? Yeah, uh, once you walk far away enough from it, it explodes again, and uh, so now this flame's blocking it, and a suitcase falls out, and the camera zooms in on it, like, again, because it can do that now, uh, to show you that it's important. But then, out of the truck comes the first enemy in the game. Zombies are back, and Claire is so scared she falls backwards and crawls slowly, which is something they loved so much that Jill does it, like, ten times in the remake of Resident Evil 1. <laughs> And then, like, half a dozen zombies pop out of the ground, because it's a graveyard. And they're like, well, we did this in Resident Evil 3, so we need to do this here, too. <laughs> what was your first reaction to that? Because mine, my, uh, my brother and I played it together. Mine was just shit, because we never fought enemies in a survival horror game before. You have to press more than one button to attack, and you're surrounded. My reaction was dying, because I didn't know you had to ready the knife and then push your button to attack with <laughs> this wasn't the first one I played. I played a uh, three first, so I played a uh, Resident Evil before. So I was like, "Oh shit, this again!" <laughs> it's best to just run away, like just push through. They put them in the way, though. Yeah, uh, they're in the way. Uh, so actually, okay, I guess what the best thing to do is you can slash at the legs of zombies, and they'll fall down faster. Yeah, you're pretty much gonna want to do that. You can do more damage if you slash the head or whatever. Just run for it. You can kill them all if you want, but you won't be coming back here for a while. A little while. When you do come back, even if you've killed them all before, they respawn, so don't bother. <laughs> now on to a more important scene. <laughs> Immediately after the terrible cemetery full of guys that want to kill you is the terrible character that accidentally almost kills you. Steve! <laughs> oh boy. Yep. Steve Burnside is very Canadian. <laughs> very dorky. He sounds like a rocket power character. She really fucking does. <laughs> Claire's voice actor, she's fine. 
She's the same person from Resident Evil 2. Uh, she does a better job. Like, she sounds more like a human being. But, yeah, uh, Steve, ooh, he says he's sorry. He's really sorry all the time. And his reaction to hearing Claire's name says, huh, Claire, nice. Because we need to hate him immediately. Immediately, like, not, not even, like, five minutes, just right away. Also, he says that Claire will slow him down and stuff, so... Fuck Steve, basically. <laughs> It'll be a little bit before you see him again. At this point, you have pretty much only one way to go. Like, they're still kind of corralling you. Because uh, this game doesn't really lead you to a hub very early. Like, Resident Evil 1, you start in the hallway of the mansion. 2, you get to the police station. It's your first destination. The prison area is pretty linear. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, also, you almost immediately get another weapon, the uh, M100P, which is double handguns, which I assume you get this early because they want to show off aiming in two directions at once. A thing that will come up rarely. Very rarely. <laughs> also, it has a percentage for your ammo instead of how many bullets you have left. You can't reload it ever. It was done in Resident Evil 3 as well. Yeah, fair enough. So, I mean, your first goal then is to find a way to get that suitcase. So you find a fire extinguisher. But when you use it, if this is your first survival horror game, this probably won't strike you as strange, but if you played other Resident Evil games... You'll still have it in your inventory, it's just empty. So if you're savvy enough, try to find a way to hold on to it, or you'll regret it later. Though you might not regret it too much. Yeah, it's not like a major story or anything, it's just an extra weapon. It's an extra weapon that in most other Resident Evil games would be key, but in this game is actually totally skippable. Yeah, one thing you'll notice too is if you search around like uh, spots with the dead bodies, like actually the body where Claire found the handgun... Uh, you can't see it, but she'll see some handgun bullets there. There's a lot of ammo sitting around. Though that's a that's another thing that they have done in old games as well, is items that are not visible even slightly, but if you, you check them. So, I mean, if you're diligent about doing that, then I'm just going to go ahead and say play this game on normal for the most part, because easy reduces the enemy's health, which is fine, but also you get like double or triple the ammo with each pickup. Even if you don't find a hidden ammo, it's a lot. It, it'll make some weapons seem pointless because you'll have so much ammo for more powerful ones. Though if you are playing most versions of this game that were released in North America, you will not have the option of easy mode anyway, so... <laughs> you use a fire extinguisher, you get the briefcase, but you can't just look at the briefcase or use it. You have to rotate it in your inventory to find the cash to press to open it. 3D! <laughs> it's going to get even more 3D because you need to 3D print the material inside, which is a document that talks about how it's a revolutionary metal and can't be detected by metal detectors, which you need to go through to get to a key you need to open the gate out of the prison. But you can't take it through the metal detectors, and Claire, for some reason, feels bad about, you know, throwing her metal stuff through the metal detector and then turning off the alarm because there's no guards there. So you have to use this revolutionary metal to 3D print a copy of a key. Gotta be considerate. On the way there, it introduces another enemy. You'll see like a cutscene of a zombie getting dragged like underneath the building. Uh, and when you come back, something busts out from under the building. It's the zombie dogs. They're back. Oh, of course they're hey, back. Cerberus. They're a bit more resilient in this game than other games. Yeah, also... It like me and my brother, you didn't realize that you can aim straight to hit them when they're running at you. 
then it's much harder because you're wishing them to run right up to you, at which point that's when they can jump at you and attack. The music when the body gets dragged under the grate into the building is pretty creepy. I always try to run to the next area as fast as I can before it gets too far in. Like, the music in this game is kind of weirdly operatic, but sometimes it is actually just like focused on being scary. This specific song especially. So the next section, after a lengthy run out through the, uh, like a bridge that connects the prison to the rest of the facility and some box pushing, whatever, that's every Resident Evil game. You have a choice of places you can go, but I guess we're going to discuss this in the quote-unquote correct order. This will take you to what I'd call your first, well, I'd say the only real hub area of the game, uh, the Ashford Mansion. I think it may actually be referred to as the Palace, yeah. which is mm, a crappy yeah. name for what it is. I mean, the, the track that plays in it is called Palace of Insanity. It's weird that that's the palace when there is a castle later. Yeah. <laughs> At this point, I guess we can discuss things in more general terms. So what do you think of the palace area? I think it looks like shit, but that's my, yeah. that's my modern eyes having played this game about a month ago. <laughs> I mean, it is kind of run down. It's weird, because the island was attacked, but the palace actually just looks like it has been maintained, which I feel like comes up later, because there's documents by Alfred's workers, or by Alfred, who's the owner of the mansion, who we'll meet soon. Pretty much, either they have terrible jobs that lead to their death, or they do a good job, and then they get killed for doing a good job. Yeah. But if you go upstairs, there's a save room, and this is where you hear the best piece of music in the game. Yeah, it's the save room theme. That's kind of yeah. like a consistent thing. There's like a door here with a gun indent in it that you can't open. For Actually, for a while, you won't be opening this door for a bit. And for really only one reason. Yeah. Because the guns that you need to open this door are in a room you can get to, and you can get them... Sort of. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You need two people to get them. But, I mean, if you try to get them out of the room they're in... The door locks behind you because a shelf moves in front of it, and then the room starts to heat up for no reason. I guess it's like a microwave hallway from Metal Gear Solid 4. If you have common sense, you will put them back and it will reset. It's a little more believable than others, than like Resident Evil 1 has a complicated night on a track with a shredder blade oh, yeah, on it. Oh yeah, I remember that was the first thing that killed me when I played that game the first time. <laughs> There's still an item you need to move forward, but if you try to leave... Then the alarm will go off that you heard when you tried to take the Lugers. And also you will hear a really loud scream. Boy, do you. A really loud Canadian scream. <laughs> <laughs> and Claire rightfully identifies it with Steve, and you can go back if you, you can check the monitor in the room where the Lugers were, and look who's taken the Lugers and hasn't thought to put them back. It's Steve. Oh, Steve. And it is captioned with the ever-so-predictive line, Steve is suffering. <laughs> because, <laughs> yes, yes, he is. He's always suffering. So you have to solve like, some puzzle to let him out. And depending on how long you take to do it actually affects your rank, which is awful because, I mean, he looks really like on the edge of dying the longer you wait. But yeah, you let him out, and then he won't give you the guns. Because he says, I found them and I'm keeping them. I'll trade you for something fully automatic. I do like Claire's reaction, though, when she sees the guns. She just goes, ooh, I need those. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it is kind of weird to have a character in cutscene acknowledge a sort of nonsense puzzle. 
I'm in a video game, that's the key. But when you try to leave this time, you get a cutscene. And you get to meet the villain. Alford Ashford. <laughs> if you go with his pronunciation of his own name. Alfred, he kind of sets the tone for the game in that there is, you know, something I guess you could describe as disturbing. But it's incredibly over the top. It is goofy as hell. Very, very goofy. Chewing scenery for three meals a day with music that sounds like it belongs in Castlevania. He talks with a, a voice that we can't really describe accurately in this pocket. It is very effeminate and also very fake British. Yeah, yeah. like, if, if you among your friends tries to make fun of some, like, British high society stereotype, imagine that, but actually more. Good old Alfred Ashford. Yeah, and he describes his family as being among the world's first and finest. The world's caveman family, the Ashfords. <laughs> But he does drop that his, one of his family members was a founding member of Umbrella. Edward, his grandfather. Who is probably one of the few members of Umbrella to have ever worked there to have died of natural causes. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> fucking unheard of, basically. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they got the sign that says, like, zero days since last mutation. <laughs> well, they don't keep that up too long. He finally just decides to leave uh, because he can't get a clear shot on Claire uh, because he's decided he's going to set all kinds of evil traps. I think it's more that he's the worst shot in the universe. Oh god. <laughs> that too. His aim is fucking legendary in its shittiness. <laughs> oh, he has a sniper rifle where the laser sight appears to come out of the scope, so I'm giving him some slack. Yeah, with your fantasy weapon like that. Though, honestly, I feel like with Alfred, like, Resident Evil games have always been really cheesy and over-the-top, but making a character that's this far to that side is almost an admission to just, like, how camp Resident Evil's become. If it can't be that scary, like, that terrifying against Silent Hill or something, then it's just gonna go for this sort of overblown, like, opera. To look into the future, I, I would uh, or the future of 2005, um... Uh, <laughs> Alfred is very much the character that they were like, we need to top this, and then they came up with Salazar. <laughs> yeah, Resident Evil 4 is the one most people point to as an admission of camp, and that's because it's an action movie. Yeah. It's just like, what if we made Alfred Ashford again, but he was Spanish and also a dwarf? <laughs> Your next progression is you found a ship steering wheel, and you use that to... Extend a platform and summon a submarine, which you then use as an elevator, pretty much, to go into an underwater airport, which is a statement I did not think about until my last playthrough as to how little sense that makes. Yep. That is a very goofy thing. Though, on the way there, you do get the side more pack. side pack. I mean, being able to hold a couple more items is nice. Also, this game's pretty nice about it, considering Chris is able to get a separate one later in the game. Yeah, and it's actually in a room that you passed through as Claire, but I, I guess it wasn't blown out of the wall or whatever it was hiding. Claire didn't want 12 inventory slots. Oh, this is too much. <laughs> so, you solve some basic puzzles here to get a key card, and that's why you should do this area first, because otherwise you'll be stymied in trying to get anywhere in the military training facility, which is the other place you can go besides the mansion. There's an 
sort of boss here. You don't need to kill it, but uh, you've encountered the gulp worm. Oh yeah, the gulp worm. He's like Gravedigger, but worse. Yeah, he's like Gravedigger, but made out of like a sock. I mean, Gravedigger was was a actual boss fight in Resident Evil 3. This just run away. I mean, I guess you can fight it if you want, but your reward is it just leaves. It's really pointless. Actually, if you enter the very first door nearest the entrance, you get one of the uh, first, I guess, really violent cutscenes. Like, this shocked me when I was younger. Uh, obviously, it's not going to do the same for any person now who has seen a modern graphic. It made me laugh a whole lot <laughs> when I watched it like a month ago. Yeah, it's pretty funny, honestly. Though, yeah, you encounter someone who's bizarrely alive, but they're behind, like, a lab window, and you can't get the door open. Then a giant hand grabs her head and smashes it into the window. Also, you get the bow gun here in one of its most, like, alternatively useless and incredibly useful forms in the entire series. Because normally it's just a crossbow that shoots really fast and does, like, no damage. It's only advantages it holds tons of ammo. Yeah, it does less than the handgun by a considerable amount. Yep. Unless you get explosive uh, gunpowder and combine it. That's actually what you can do next. There's a totally pointless sauna. It's like a bunch of puzzle, like, busy work to get a key. Though this also kind of shows off the item examination. The key will just be like, oh, key with label. But if you look at it, it'll tell you what the key is for. And then the item's name will change to reflect that. But it's for a cabinet to uh, get gunpowder that you can apply to the arrows and make them, like, the second best weapon in the game. I would just straight up argue the best weapon in the game, because you don't have to reload the crossbow. And it still fires as fast as if you're using regular arrows. Like, it, it straight up does more damage in a shorter amount of time than the Magnum does, which is the traditional best weapon in a Resident Evil game. I'm probably going to need those gunpowder arrows in a bit. First, you go through a door, and Alfred tries to shoot you in a sequence where you have to dodge his shots. Here's a tip. Just go where you're going already. Because he probably won't even bother to fire at you. Yeah. And I get you could say, oh, it's because he's trying to catch him in his deadly game, but why even be there? It's yeah. just that he sucks. Yep. He's kind of terrible. So you pursue Alfred, and there's another save room, and hey, you can find some hemostatic medicine, which is, if you examine the bottle Rodrigo threw out at the beginning, you'll realize that's the medicine he needs. And then you go into the next room, and this is one of the um, scenes where your character's heart beats really slowly when you open the door, and I don't know, for some reason it scared me, even though Alfred taunts you. I do like the slow zoom in to the intercom box <laughs> that he is speaking through. <laughs> And so you go to the next room, and there's a submachine gun there. Hey, you can trade with Steve, but it doesn't have ammo. The ammo's on top of some crates further down for some reason. But there's another thing in the room also. Possibly the goofiest enemy in any Resident Evil game ever. <laughs> a bright yellow Gumby-looking motherfucker called the Bandersnatch. He looks like... Stretch Armstrong that you painted yellow and left in the sun for too long. And one arm melted off. And one arm melted off. This thing can take a lot of damage, so this is why you should have the gunpowder arrows, because you can put them down really quick. Also, if you don't want to get hurt by this thing, because it, it'll pretty much sucker punch you immediately, is if you like stick really close to the wall when it appears, like when the cutscene starts, 
because it'll have to turn and aim at you, but it won't get a chance because you'll blow it up with gunpowder arrows. This is not a boss, though, so much as just the first appearance of these guys. Yeah. And they're a constant annoyance during the first part of the game. They show up more times than fucking Nemesis shows up in Resident Evil 3. <laughs> if you also if you try to go downstairs, it doesn't need to follow you downstairs. It can just jump down the stairs. And if you go back up the stairs, it uses its stretch arm to grab onto the railing and follow you up. It looks so silly. I mean, I think in terms of an enemy, though, it, it, it's, a, it's a good encounter, I guess. We didn't really mention exactly how it attacks, which is that it's it does the stretch arm thing just from wherever. And it has, <laughs> yep. like, the longest range, because most rooms in this game are cramped. Later, there's a room with two of them in it. Speaking of two bandage snatches, you go downstairs, and you try to walk in a door, and another one attacks Claire, but it grabs onto her head. Oh no, what will she do? Turns out nothing, because in... The first possibly cool moment that is immediately ruined, a man jumps out of the window and shoots uh, with two guns at the Bandersnatch. Problem is, this man is Steve, and he has the Gold Lugers, which really, I assumed weren't loaded, but I, apparently they were. Well, the thing is, if you grab them from the room yourself and you get locked in, they don't have any ammo in them. I don't know how he has any ammo. Steve just made ammo. I guess they just fit regular handgun bullets or something. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, they shouldn't be able to shoot anything. They're obviously decorative. Well, Steve, as we will find out later in the game, has one superpower, which is to have more bullets than possible. <laughs> and he wastes the hell out of that superpower. Sure does. But yes, he shoots the banner snatch and then is immediately annoying, ruining a possibly cool scene. <laughs> yeah, also, it should be mentioned that when he busts out of the window, goes into bullet time and rotates around. Yeah. <laughs> Matrix was pretty fresh at this time, so everyone wanted in. He could do it with someone that's not Steve. <laughs> well, the game thinks Steve is very cool, which is a, one of the reasons why he's so yeah. hateable, because he's eminently He's a fucking cool. self-insert character. Claire punks him by handing him the empty submachine guns, uh, but then, and I guess what's supposed to be a touching scene, offers to, you know, have him give her a boost off of his back to get the ammo that she saw earlier. And then Alfred says, now that your knight in shining armor has arrived... He can join you in your descent into death. Oh, <laughs> yes. Which is the worst line. <laughs> But in a yeah. in a fun way, at yeah. least. Alfred. <laughs> yeah, and then when you get to the bottom, Steve's like, alright, let's do it. Wait here, Claire. And then you have a section where you play as Steve and find out, well, even when you're playing as him, he's still kind of a dick. <laughs> yep. Uh, so yeah, you can aim at two zombies at the same time with the submachine gun, which is more useful because this section is... <laughs> balanced by the submachine gun being really good, and you only having to use it on zombies. Also, if you try to pick up any of the things that are in this room, because you'll need to come back through again as Claire later, Steve will comment, that doesn't work with this gun, and then like <laughs> fucking not pick it up and leave. <laughs> also, you want to be an extra douche. If you're down to one enemy, um, I guess we should mention also that uh, the way the aiming system works is you press the ready weapon button and your character will automatically aim at an enemy like 
usually the nearest one. But you can press another button to change which enemy you're targeting, which sometimes might be more useful. If you press that button to Steve when there's one enemy remaining, he'll cross his arms and fire both of his submarines like gangster style, oh, sort of. And then, depending on how you cleared that section, Steve has different dialogue. But most likely you will have shot all the enemies with this gun that you just got, because it's fun. And Steve will go, Alright, this area is now clean. <laughs> dirty work. In the douchiest way possible. Yeah. Oh, and there's a scene we forgot to mention in the prison, uh, which is actually important, where you find Steve on a computer, and Rumbrella was tracking Claire's brother, Chris. So... Claire contacts Leon from Resident Evil 2, uh, who she's still in touch with, to get in touch with Chris and gives Chris the coordinates to the island. And Steve, for some reason, doesn't believe that Chris will come. Doesn't think that you can depend on anyone to come help you, you have to do it yourself. And then in this cutscene, in the sewer, he says that his submachine guns are more trustworthy than anyone. Which Claire finds rightfully really weird and tries to ask him what happened and why he's on the island. And he just tells her to shut up and shoots his gun at a wall for, like, 30 seconds. Yeah, he wastes most of his bullets. It will not be the last time that he will do this. Yeah, in fact, he's about to waste the rest of it in the next cutscene. Steve and Claire are running along, like, a walkway, and it collapses. Steve is fine, Claire gets caught under some rubble, and then a zombie appears and is heading right for them. Steve, shoot him. Why won't you shoot him? And then the zombie turns to its Claire for some reason. And when it almost attacks Claire, you get the reason why Steve didn't want to shoot the zombie. He delivers the line, Father! And he fires every last bullet that he has in the submachine gun with his eyes closed. Yeah. Good thing he was pointed in the right direction. And just keeps firing even though there are no more bullets left eventually. <laughs> Yeah, also he, like, telekinetically lifts his dad off of Claire with the bolts and pushes him to the side. That doesn't really make any sense. Steve's a gun wizard. He just is crap. It's the problem. <laughs> and then, well, Percy, he cries about it for a second, says father some more. Uh, and then he explains to Claire what happened. Which is that his dad was also incompetent. <laughs> uh, he tried to steal secrets from Umbrella, and they caught him because he sucked at it. And then they sent him here and he died. For some reason they killed his mom right away and then he just they sent the two the Hackus Umbrellas to have a great crack record with women. With anything. Well with anything. Or anything. Yeah, they're pretty universally terrible. <laughs> but you encounter like I think one of the few like super competent higher up women in Umbrella in this game. Kind of. She's competent off screen. Yeah. After that you have a big sort of puzzle break. You can see like grenade launcher rounds in a cabinet, but it's locked. No key for it. But we do have something that we mentioned earlier that we could go back and do if we feel like it, which is we have that medicine. Yeah, we might as well discuss this now uh, because it doesn't really play into when you return to the prison for other stuff. It's literally a side mission. It is never required for anything. You deliver the pills to Rodrigo and he's touched by how kind you are. Because it doesn't seem like anyone's nice to Rodrigo. No, not really. It yeah. seems like his life sucks. But, like, along with the 
the pills, you also leave your lighter because it's fucking dark in that room. He's just been sitting in the dark for like the last several hours. Yeah, and it's uh, it's a keepsake from Chris, apparently. So, you know, it has some value there. And Rodrigo just gives her some lockpicks. And that can be used to open a whole bunch of shit throughout the rest of the section where you're playing as Claire. Yeah, if you try to talk to him, though, he just—he really just wants to be left alone. Like, he, he's not going to suddenly become all friendly in public because you were nice to him once. So the next thing you do is a bunch of stuff to get into that lab, because Claire saw a really rad painting in the back of that lab, and she wants it very much. It's like a skeleton in front of a blood-red sea. Yeah, Which is awesome. <laughs> it's got a pirate hat. It's a skeleton conquistador. It's a picture I would hang up in my room. Oh, hell yeah. yeah. I can't seem to find a high-resolution version of it anywhere. That has to be out there somewhere. I hope. On the way, you find a um, slideshow, I guess, demonstrating something about the creature called an albinoid. Which, oh, God. Uh, yeah, they make a big deal out of it. A lot of build-up for a thing that we'll Sucks. come back to later for, like, a second. Yeah, but it mentions that it's this uh, amphibious creature that can discharge electricity from its body, which is another great Umbrella bioweapon. Well, it would be if this game was Resident Evil Revelations. But it isn't, so it isn't. Yeah. Um, but you get that Skeleton Conquistador portrait, and then that's when there's a breakout in the lab. Albinoids, they've all been sticking to the ceiling this whole time. One of them goes into the ventilation system, but the rest, I guess, get sterilized because the lab has another lockdown. Then you can make your return to the palace. Oh, and we forgot to mention this is this is really important. I can't believe we skipped this. In the room where you can try and get the gold lukers, before the shelf moves out of the way so you can go into the back room, you watch a little film. There's a little film. A little film that you will see again later, but this is the first time you see it. It is a movie that has a lot of significance on really just about everything in the plot, and they are going to hit you over the head with it, <laughs> because this game is not very subtle. No, ham-fists. It is very obviously old footage of Alfred and his twin sister Alexia, who has been mentioned in notes. Yeah. And they are tearing the wings off of a dragonfly and feeding it to ants while an odd song plays in the background that you think, oh, that's kind of an interesting song, the first time you hear it. <laughs> yep, and then it becomes a leitmotif. Yep, yep, it shows up everywhere from that point on. <laughs> oh, and also at the end of the film, there's kind of this like implication of possible incest. It's really weird. Yeah, that that definitely is a thing in that video. They look longingly into each other's eyes, and then the film cuts. Though I guess you could just interpret as they're both super creepy children, because, yes, that's also true. Yeah, they are. Except various other notes and stuff will yeah. flesh out the fact that, no, it totally is incest. <laughs> that's totally the thing in that. The Asher family's kind of fucked up. It's about to come up again. Here's a puzzle I actually kind of liked, even though it is pretty ridiculous. There's a family portrait room in the palace that has pictures of the entire Ashford lineage. And there's a document from the butler of the Ashford family, who's been with them for a long time, that lists the family members in order, and also occasionally the physical features, 
and like a, an heirloom they were given. And you have to press the buttons on the paintings in the order of the family. You can find it out with everything in that room. It's just it requires a, a bit of a logical thinking process. Then you get a vase, and if you look in it, there's a little bug jewel thing. I don't know, it feels like you should have gotten a more significant... Something that felt like it had more plot behind it. Like, this is more of a thematic symbol. Was it the red or the blue gem? I think it's the red one, because the vase is Alexia's. Uh, and that's the other thing you'll notice through these documents, is that even though Alfred's the only one around who seems to be doing things, all documents, including ones by Alfred, refer to Alexia as the true heir of the Ashford family, their legacy. She deserves the whole world. She's the greatest. You can use the Lugers, finally, to get access to... Well, it's an entryway to the private house. House is a, an understatement. <laughs> yeah, but first you have to fight a, another Bandersnatch, and you get to hear the song again. There's a clock puzzle here, but for some reason the computer plays a snippet of the film that you saw literally no reason to be there. It's just to reinforce, hey, don't forget this, because it's the everything in this game. Yeah, hey, did you get the symbolism yet? If you didn't, also the clock, when you finish the puzzle, shows uh, cutouts of Alfred and Alexia, and they kiss, and then they go away. Yep. Yep. And it plays the song as, like, a it music plays version. <laughs> There's like seven different versions of that fucking song. Yeah, I think it only repeats like once, the different versions of this song. There's a lot of them. You hear a woman doing a ridiculous evil laugh, and then this dramatic lightning bolts. This has heartbeat scared room transition to it too, which is, I don't know. I mean, it's a person. As far as you know, they can't be as bad as anything you thought. Suddenly you're gonna ask why you aren't hearing Vampire Killer, though, in the background. Pretty much. It looks like Dracula's castle. Yeah. On the inside and outside, it looks like Dracula's castle. Also, there's two more Bandersnatches in the, the fucking garden outside this castle. The statues in the garden area have, like, a really creepy gothic, like, design to them. They look like cherubs, but they have a slab cut out, and you have, like, exposed ribs and stuff. Yeah, it's weird. I think that's pretty effective. And then you go into the house, and there's, like, a creepy hanging doll with, like, a slightly detached head and blood around the neck. It's straight. Like, it seems like it belongs on Silent Hill or something. It's actually kind of legitimately unsettling. Also, it's huge. It's not, like, a tiny thing. It's more like a statue, really. Yeah. Like, the stairs wrap around it. It's so big. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the centerpiece. It's like where a chandelier would be in a sensible <laughs> There's a report in here about transporting something left by Hunk, who you may remember from a side mode in Resident Evil 2. Yes, the yep. human unit never killed, never though killed. he probably hasn't been called that yet. <laughs> I don't remember when the first time they used the actual full text for that acronym. Yep. Though, I mean, it's kind of telling that this guy who's just survived so many of Umbrella's fuck-ups leaves a report saying, uh, I don't know about transporting this thing. Go upstairs, and there's another cutscene. You hear Alexia talking to Alfred, and Claire almost gets spotted. You go into the rooms, you don't see them. There's an item on the bed, which when you take it, the bed slams down. There's like a ladder leading upstairs. It's blocked, but 
this is an execution device. Why is it in the private room of one of the people who is at the head of the family that owns the island? That's a good question. I'm kind of wondering if maybe one of the workers installed it in a sort of sidelong bid to kill Alexia, because if you read reports on workers, like I said earlier, they hate the conditions working there. And there's a document by Alfred about the construction of the path leading to the private house, uh, including a tunnel that the maintenance workers use. Alfred says, oh, now that they finished the work, I'm going to collapse the tunnel and they can all die, whatever. No one gets to see my precious Alexia. To solve the puzzle with the weird bed trap, though, you need to use that gem you got from the base puzzle earlier. You can't do the rest yet, though. It does open the music box. Yep. Which plays the fucking song again. Because of course it does. <laughs> Mechanics behind this puzzle are just kind of, are very much, oh, I did a thing. Oh, I guess I need to do another thing. There's no logical connection between the music box and the bed or anything, or the gems you put on top of them. So you get an emblem, which matches a gate you saw way back in the prison in the guillotine room. Probably the time you'd head back there and maybe visit Rodrigo and give him the medicine. Though you could have done this at any time. You can do it after this, too. Usually when I do, because it's the most convenient, because you're yeah. right there. Also, you can open a shortcut back into the lab area with the metal detectors, and you can take the stuff you got out of there. Including the fire extinguisher. Yeah, you want the fire extinguisher. Also, there's grenade rounds there. They're green. They're called the B.O.W. gas rounds. These are the only ones in the game. Can you explain what these do? I actually don't know. They're <laughs> kind of weird. If you fire them in a room that's with zombies, all the zombies in the room will fall to the ground at the same time. It doesn't seem to hurt them, but yeah, they fall over. They're supposed to be extra effective on bosses, but all six rounds is enough to kill any boss in the game, so I don't know. Uh, and then you go into the next section, and this is the one that really scared me as a kid. There's a medical ward with files left by the doctor of the ward who talks about how he's tortured by fantasies of wanting to torture patients, the sick people in the prison. And so, he admits these fantasies to Alfred, and Alfred builds him a fucking torture dungeon. If you go into a side room, you'll see a body bag wriggle. I wonder what it could be. Could it be a zombie? We've only fought them in every room of this video game so far. <laughs> it's kind of funny, this section, though, because, I mean, if you're ideally creeped out by this area and unsettled by the body bag, there's a bit of an upswing because there's a lockpick suitcase, which you can open, which has the upgrade parts of the handgun, which now makes it fire three-round bursts. Which means you can waste your ammo really fast. It is better, at in the very least, because... Even if you switch it back to single shot, it has more capacity. Yeah, and it shoots a little faster, too, because it has a shoulder yeah. stock. Oh, and this is the other scary door sequence thing that bothers me as a kid. Come back in, and ideally you'll be feeling the dread, which kind of undercuts getting the handgun. The miniest of mini-bosses. The doctor, who's feeding on one of the bodies on the table. And he turns and sees you and comes at you, and then the body on the table also gets up and comes after you. Yeah. It's kind of funny, really. But if you try to use the handgun on this guy, it's probably not going to work out very well, because this doctor is super tough. 
he is about as tough as a couple of zombies, and he is a fast zombie, one of the few in this game. Yeah, torture made him super. <laughs> he drops a glass eye out of his pocket, which goes into an anatomy model, and that's what unlocks the torture room. A glass eye, another thing that will show up in the following game. <laughs> because yeah. thinking about it, Resident Evil 4 actually takes a lot of things from Code Veronica. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was originally going to be the numbered sequel, but Sony wasn't having that. So yeah. now Resident Evil 3, which more people have played, is kind of the canon thing, which doesn't have a lot of story content in it. Yeah, and it started out as Resident Evil Gaiden. Yep. A game that turned out much worse. <laughs> so you go into this torture room, and it's packed full. It has, like, every medieval torture device in it. The greatest hits of medieval torture. And there's a table with, like, a bottle of wine on it in the back and some cushiony seats. And there's a curtain behind it, which I always thought there must be some way to open, because the camera focuses on it specifically. But Just a background. Yeah. Yep. Go downstairs from this torture room, and there's a room with an Iron Maiden in it, which is probably the only thing you might have considered to be missing from the medieval torture room. And then you have to do something incredibly weird. There's a sword, you take the sword and you jam it into the Iron Maiden. It sets up like a gas trap. Yep, where the gas is coming out of the nozzle, which is also the handle you need to turn. And then the Iron Maiden opens up, and there was a zombie inside, and he's chasing you around with a sword stuck through him. <laughs> which is, again, really fucking goofy. Yep. <laughs> it's just, just a little silly. There's like a little uh, player piano music scroll you need to take from inside the Iron Maiden. Again, mm -hmm. item placements in Resident Evil. No matter how much sense they try to drive around the puzzles, the item placements make no sense. Unless this guy was like the official pianist or something. But that actually wouldn't make sense either because it's, it's a player, a player piano. piano. <laughs> yeah, you take the scroll back to the player piano in the palace area. Guess what fucking song it is? <laughs> the same one that we've heard like four times in a, a very nice piano rendition. It, it is, it is a, a pleasant song. But also, that zombie, if you don't kill it, for some reason they implemented this little side thing. When you go back up the stairs in the torture room, the zombie will follow you through the door and come at you very slowly. Also, this is a good place to demonstrate something that you can do in this game, is if you kill a zombie while they're walking on the stairs, they will fall down every step and take extra damage, and it looks really funny. Mm -hmm. There's a few funny ways to dispatch zombies. There's a... We kind of skipped it because it's not a plot-important thing at all. <laughs> but there is a bridge crossing to the palace... Mm -hmm. that initially there are a couple zombies on. If you get grabbed uh, from the back by the zombie and the, the zombie's in between your back and the bridge railing, Claire will just fucking, like, jam backwards, and the zombie will flip over the railing and fall off the bridge and die. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty, pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and that player piano is in another room you unlock the key you got, uh, which is a bar and a gambling room, which I don't know how much use it got because uh, Alfred's shit and no one seems to like him. Understandably so. It also has one working slot machine. <laughs> that gives you the other ant jewel that you need. So you go back to the private house. Oh, yeah, then you go back to the opened music box, take the music wheel into the other mirrored room. <laughs> 
put that in and hear the song again, (laughs) then you can head up the ladder. Yeah, and go into the attic. There's a little piece of music here that plays. It's actually pretty good. It only plays here, so you probably won't even hear all of it. But here's where you'll find a snippet from a newspaper that says that Alexia graduated from college at a really, really young age. It's like 10 or something. Or was that when she started work for Umbrella? She became, like, head chief researcher of Umbrella at, like, age 13. Yeah, you get that piece of news and you get another item you need for the airport. Guess what? Ashford's can't stop attacking Claire with the sniper rifle when she's trying to get stuff done. Alexia tries to shoot Claire with the sniper rifle. Uh, she misses, but Claire falls on her back again. Maybe the fact that she is a terrible shot is a clue for a thing that we're about to learn. Yeah, but first, Steve busts in to save the day. Well, he tries. As he so often does. He gets shot in the arm, but he, like, grazes Alexia's face, and she runs through a secret door, which is like the statue thing in the middle of the room. All those times when he went, you looped around, you could have actually just gone through. Go in there, and there's a wig on the uh, other music box. The dress has been discarded. Try to look at it, and Alfred jumps out and does, like, sniper rifle kung fu on you. Then he sees his own face in the mirror and freaks out and runs away. Claire has a revelation. They come to the accurate conclusion that Alfred has been dressing up as his sister, but the inaccurate conclusion that Claire comes to is, there never was an Alexia, was there? (laughs) Which she should know is wrong, because she's seen the video that proves that Alexia existed at some point. Private documents and stuff by people who would have no reason to carry on this fiction. And then the self-destruct sequence gets activated. Of course. But not before Steve says something even worse than what Claire just said, Mm. which is he goes, he's dressing up as a woman. We need to get out of here. Yep. Which is really fucking transphobic. Also, well, you've been on an island that's been full of zombies and horrible monsters, and that's the tipping point. We need to leave. There's a man in a wig. We need to leave now. <laughs> I, I can't do that shit. Get me out of here. Yeah, now you have all the items you need for the airport. There's no countdown yet. You just hear that self-destruct's activated. So you go set it up, but the bridge is in the way, so you can't take off. So you have to solve a bunch of puzzles to lower the bridge. But then you can't go out that way. You have to go out a separate way in the airport. And that's when you see the package that Hunk delivered. A tyrant pops out of a cold sleep uh, containment capsule, and it has a very blank face. It's a very boring tyrant. Nothing too special about it. Oh, except for the fact that you were fighting it not even halfway into the game. Yeah. That is the exciting thing, is that this is traditionally a end-of-game kind of encounter. Technically, Bandersnatches are a type of Technically, but... Technically, but they are pretty bad. We skip something important again. I make the outline and I still let him, I just skip over points of the outline. Episode 2. On the return to the palace you made after the goofy sword zombie thing, Wesker shows up. Wesker 
the character that you probably thought was dead at the end of Resident Evil 1, because you may have gotten the ending where his head gets cut off by a fucking tyrant. I mean, he's, he's supposed to be dead in every single one. Yeah, and he's here, and he mocks Claire, talks about how much he hates Chris, which also doesn't jive with the Wesker reports where Chris inadvertently did exactly what Wesker wanted. He's called retcons. <laughs> he beats the crap out of Claire with superhuman strength, and then he just leaves, and he has glowy red eyes. Yeah, like the fucking Terminator, and he jumps over a wall. Yep. Yeah, I don't like this addition to the game. It doesn't add anything story-wise, and it gives away Wesker's changes and stuff too early. This particular cutscene. There are other cutscenes they add that I think are great. Yeah. This one is really unnecessary. Yeah, it's very needless. <laughs> Once you go out the back way through the underwater airport, you encounter the tyrant. More stuff explodes behind Claire, knocking her to the ground. God damn it, Claire. Then the tyrant busts through a gate... <laughs> Hopefully you had a good weapon on you at the time, or you're fucked. <laughs> Pretty yeah. much. Luckily, it, uh, before you take the elevator up out of the airport, there's a uh, item box and typewriter, so, you know, if you were unsure, you won't be set too far back. The tyrant just walks at you slowly and will strike at you, knocking you back. You want to kill him before there's no room left, because then he'll punch you into the flaming wreckage and you'll die instantly. It's like that one fight in Super Metroid. Nothing to it, really. Yeah, you run past him, get back to the airport, and you're ready for takeoff. You made it. As Steve says, Yahoo! Fucking Steve! Then there's a scene, I actually kind of like this. It shows Alfred, like, open a secret passage and go into a control panel, saying, Now you'll know what true terror is all about! And you'll mostly use a different voice, because it seems like after he has this identity crisis... He uses a voice in between Alexia's and Alfred's normal voice. I, I liked it. I think it was a good touch, actually. <laughs> then he gets into a Harrier jet and takes off from the island. Something attacks the cargo hold of the transport plane that you've taken off in. Oh, Steve knows how to fly transport planes, by the way. Of course he does. Yeah, this 17-year-old knows how to fly a fucking cargo plane. Except I, I refuse to believe that he does. I choose to believe that, considering a thing that happens later, that the ship was just yeah, on autopilot from the, from the get-go. <laughs> Something's attacked the back, and tellingly, in this little space in this plane, there's another typewriter and an item box. And now you have to fight the tyrant for and real. Knock, it's the tyrant Time for a part that will be reused in Resident Evil 6. Yeah! <laughs> Fuck. Out of the club hands of the tyrant sprouts some claws. You're fighting in the back of the plane, the cargo hold is open, so now you have to be careful to not get knocked out of the plane. <laughs> it'll do dashing attacks, it'll do like slow charge up slam attacks that do a lot of damage. So the way to beat this fight, you want to damage him a lot and then use the panel by the door to launch crate at him. <laughs> that will slam him out of the plane ideally. That will slam him out of the plane and then explode for no reason, killing him. If you try that immediately, though, if he's not damaged enough, he'll push the crate back against the wall. And, and you'll have to wait for it to reset, mm -hmm. which is a bad idea. Yeah, I mean, it does weaken him if you, like, reset the crate and, like, launch it at him enough times, but you're in tight spaces, and you don't need to save all that ammo for something else. This is what it's for. 
This is what it's for, but the thing is, if you have not been saving ammo, this is the point in the game, the first of many points, that has traditionally screwed over many, many first-time players. <laughs> yeah. Because if you haven't been playing well enough, you don't have enough ammo to beat him, basically. Yeah, and like if you say, like I did my last playthrough, remember those acid rounds that were behind that locked cabinet in the basement of the military training facility, you can't sidetrack once the self-destruct sequence starts. So, I mean, too bad. They would have been pretty good against this boss. So you launch it out of the plane and then it explodes in midair. And then you go back out and the plane is locked in autopilot. Steve can't regain control and who's done it? It's Alfred. And then Claire is terrible. Yep. Claire says, without a doubt, the worst line in modern day sensibilities in the whole game, where she calls Alfred a cross-dressing freak. Yeah. Good job, protagonist. Yep, like there's plenty of other things he's done that are yeah, like murdering people, running like a fucking death prison. There's plenty of things that are terrible about Alfred. Not that one. Also, you know, wanting to bang your sister is, yeah. you know, something that's looked down upon in modern society. Yes, the the thing about that is that he wants to bang his sister and also thinks he is his own sister. That's the weird thing, not the fact that he is dressing up as his sister. Anyways, he forces the plane onto a set path so Steve and Claire just give up and take a nap. Then Steve proves he's awful in the cutscene yep. when they're waking up. Steve tries to kiss Claire while she is asleep, which is the worst move. Then she starts to wake up and he turns away, because, you know, he knows if she was awake, he wouldn't be able to kiss her, she wouldn't let him, which is fucking creepy. It's also not the last time Steve will do something like this. Don't worry, we'll get back to it. <laughs> Anyways, you wake up, and you're in the Antarctic, and the other cargo planes that took off with other prisoners from another airport on the island have all crashed into a base in the Antarctic. And then your plane crashes into the base in the Antarctic. And on the Dreamcast version, this is where the transition from disc one to disc two is. The planes are apparently other survivors from Rockford Island. You know, three planes worth of them that you never run into during the whole time there. And then they are just all dead <laughs> outside the Arctic base. Well, you see, solving puzzles in Resident Evil is like karma. You build it up, and that lets you survive these improbable situations, like a plane crash. Welcome to the hour and 30-minute mark of the podcast, and the yeah. second fourth of this game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I feel like it picks up here, because there's a lot of reuse. During that second half of the game. Yeah, so there's a document you can find here in one of the first rooms in, like, the workers' quarters. And guess what? Alfred comes here and makes the workers feel horrible all the time, too. Mm-hmm. what he does. And there's also talk about them hearing the cries of some creature that the workers call Nosferatu. Because they are not creative. No, not at all. And then you can get attacked by zombies here, and it's like, whoa, zombies. But, I mean, you just blew up a tyrant. There are so many whoa, zombies moments in this game. Like, after the first one, you shouldn't have any more of those in a Resident Evil game. So you go downstairs, and then you encounter an enemy which has a bit of an introduction. Uh, you see a bunch of bodies stuck to walls with eggs on them. And there are giant moths. 
These things suck. This is the first of several enemy types from the the rest of this point onward that can poison you. There is a lot of poison in Code Veronica. Yeah, it sure is. I mean, in this hall, they sort of let you off easy because there's an infinite blue herb which cures poison. Like in a planter, you can't take it, but you can use it on the spot as much as you want. And you are going to use it a lot. Here's the other problem, though. The mods in this hallway infinitely respawn. You can never permanently kill the mods in this hallway. Oh yeah, that's why you're going to use it a lot. <laughs> Just this hallway, really. And you can get to a save room. You hear a banging sound. This whole locker with something banging against it. Also, the camera cuts to like behind Claire's shoulder. Weirdly reminiscent of Resident Evil 4, I think, for most people, if they see it. And then just a rat busts out, and this rat is actually surprisingly important. Oh yeah, we'll get to it. There's a button in the back of the locker, though, but you can't push it because the power is off in the base. Just know that this, this rat is... this is actually not the first time you've seen him in this game. <laughs> Far from it. He's kind of the Forrest Gump of Code Veronica, actually. He shows up all throughout it for no reason. <laughs> that sets up your goal. You need to turn the power back on. Base appears to be focused around a big shipping facility. So there's a cargo belt. There's side rooms for a BOW experimentation room, weapon room, where you can get an AK-47 just sitting in one of the lockers in the back. Which is a surprisingly terrible weapon. I mean, I guess it would be better than an unupgraded handgun, but you yeah. There's also the side room with the BOWs, short for bioorganic weapon. It's for all the zombies and monsters. There's giant spiders in here. Giant spiders are in every Resident Evil game, and all the ones released up to the point of Code Veronica, they never introduce them in a cutscene. They're just like, whatever, giant spiders. They just are there. So, there's spiders in here, they can spit acid at you, and they can grab you up close and chew into your body, which might poison you. There's a gas mask in here, which you also can't get because there's no gas leak or anything. So this sets up another cycle. You just have to go into a generator room and flip some switches. There's some dogs in the generator room, too, which I don't know how they're surviving in a non-temperature-controlled Antarctic base. Well, they're not. They're dead. It's a fucking Resident <laughs> Evil game. And the thing about the spiders in Veronica is I don't think they're like the furry ones from the first games, aren't they? Like more slender. More like a weird yeah. light-colored Black Widow kind of situation. Yeah, I don't know my spiders very well, but they appear to be a mishmash of a bunch of hairless spiders, anyhow. Yeah, just spooky they're spider. just spooky spiders. And the armory, there's a locker with a detonator next to it, and you can place the detonator. If you still have the lighter, you can set this off. Otherwise, you have to wait until way later to do it, but all that's in the locker are a few sets of handgun bullets. Really kind of ridiculous if you do it with the second character. Also, there's like a cutscene for it where your character waits around the corner. And they wait around the corner behind a rack of missiles, <laughs> which is the worst idea. place you could possibly stand. <laughs> it's amazing. Yep. So you turn the power back on. Um, once you do that, you can move some of the stuff on the conveyor belt. There's a special camera shot of the conveyor belt that shows a crate destined for the weapons room with a magnum on top. But once you get the conveyor belt moving, if you go back in the weapons room, the conveyor's broken. So it knocks over a bunch of stuff and blows some stuff up. So there's a fire between you and the magnum. So you can't get it. 
it also delivers a crate into the BOW room, which unleashes some gas, which opens up the gas mask. And I think it kills the spiders if you haven't killed them yet. Yeah, I think it does. Also, when you turn the power back on, the soundtrack also turns back on. You push the button that's in the locker, and that's when it's revealed to you that Nosferatu is in fact real. And he lets out a cry, and it's got some super cheesy reveal music. But you need to go in there to get a key. So if you use the key to get into a room with a going to move a digging machine, so Steve comes in and says, like, oh, there's a base not too far from here. I think if we can just get out of here and drive for long enough, we can get to it. We need to get to the Australian base. <laughs> yep. But as Steve is moving the digging machine, he's overcome by the desire to stare at Claire's ass. Yep. And Claire does not notice. Nope. Until Steve does something not intelligent. He just fucking slams the thing into a poison gas valve. (laughs) (laughs) So then you have to run out, and you can only go back in the room if you have the gas mask. It's an upper section of a room below that you also need the gas mask to go into. There's a valve you need to shut that will turn off the flow of the gas. Also, Steve feels like, he says he feels really bad and it's all my fault, and Claire's like, no, it's not your fault. We'll get out of here together. And she, like, smiles at him because she doesn't know that yeah. he was thirsty as fuck. She just thinks that it was, like, operator error, like he didn't know what he was doing, and yeah. just incompetence, kind of. Yeah. But no, it's that he's a fuck-up <laughs> and was distracted by being a perv. That, again, you have to do all this because, like, split up? I have no idea what Steve is ever doing when you split up. Yeah, I assume he just sits. He just kind of goes and does nothing. <laughs> I assume he's doing rituals to generate more bullets for his guns since he's constantly running out. I need all these bullets so I can do nothing. If you have the, get the valve handle and you have the mask, you can shut off the gas. <laughs> and then we're safe now. And who comes in but Alfred? And is ready to chew Claire, when all of a sudden Steve busts in and actually is sort of cool and doesn't ruin it. It's the only time in the game where he does something cool and then doesn't say something really crappy to, like, make you hate him. He just kind of, like, does this weird action slide and shoots him a lot. I mean, you don't really like Alfred either, so, you know, it, it evens out. Yeah, Alfred gets shot a lot, falls over a railing, Steps backwards onto, like, a piece of ice, and then the ice gives way and he falls into a pit. Yet this, as we will learn in just a few minutes, does not kill him. No, somehow, this wily Coyote shit doesn't kill him. The getting shot is what eventually kills him, (laughs) but he does not die for a considerably long time. The camera will focus on Albert's sniper rifle he dropped. It's your not-so-subtle hint that you should go pick that up. Though, this is also your chance to put away any items you're carrying, and I would recommend putting away all your guns, which doesn't make much sense, because you're thinking, I haven't fought a boss in a while. I have a lot of trouble, personally, on the normal difficulty finishing off the next boss with only the sniper rifle. So bring a gun. Bring, yeah. like, that shitty AK with you Yeah, as you well, bring the AK with you. Because you're not going to want it later. <laughs> Bring the AK with you. If you haven't upgraded the handgun, then I guess bring it along. Bring, like, healing items, too. But, yeah. you know, not too many. Well, as soon as you take the sniper rifle, Steve, who doesn't realize he's in a video game, is like, what are you doing? Hurry up, let's go. And you automatically run to the digging machine. And there's a cutscene where Steve busts through that wall. 
and it uh, floods the base with water, which is only important in the context of the fact that you'll come back here later. It is only important in the context that it will severely annoy and inconvenience Chris Redfield. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you bust through the wall. Automatically, they go up to the roof to get to the other side of the building they're on where the snow... Well, he calls them the snowmobile. It's not a snowmobile. It's a truck. It's, yeah, it's not a snow. It's a snow truck. <laughs> yeah, technically it's a mobile, so it's a snowmobile. <laughs> but as you try to get to the other side, there's a cutscene where it shows Nosferatu in his basement dungeon, breaking out of all his restraints. Also, there's an axe that was restraining him, which goes flying off to the side. An entirely pointless, like, medieval Ren yeah, Faire like axe. Yeah, fucking Astaroth pinned him down. That, yeah, that Astaroth would use in a Soul <laughs> Calibur game. Yeah, so he comes out the other side and is coming up the stairs. He sprouts giant tentacles and knocks Steve off the roof. But don't celebrate, Steve's still hanging on by a thread. Well, by a ledge, but he's barely hanging on, not dead. He tells Claire to leave, and Claire won't, uh, so you have to fight Nosferatu. This boss is kind of annoying. It is annoying for three reasons. The first of which is the game does not really explain how scopes work oh, in this game. <laughs> the second is uh, that the draw distance on the Dreamcast and later PS2 is fucking terrible. <laughs> oh god, is it? It's fucking atrocious. I think it's actually worse in Code Veronica X, because I've had a much easier time with this boss fight on the Dreamcast version. I think it is a little worse, yeah. Maybe it's just intentionally done that way, because they thought it was too easy or something? Because this, I found it a lot more difficult. The third reason he is awful is that his attacks have a chance of poisoning you, yep. and this is a throwback to Resident Evil 1. Remember Yawn, the giant snake that poisons you with a toxin that cannot be cured by blue herbs and can only be cured by anti-venom? Yeah, oh, fuck you. Yeah. Nosferatu can also do that. So that means if you get poisoned in this fight, you will be poisoned until you can get rid of it in the very specific way that gets rid of it. Yeah, which you can't do during the boss fight. You're exactly. just gonna screw if you get poisoned. Uh, if you get poisoned during this boss fight, then hurry it up. So what Nosferatu does is swings his like giant tentacle arm things, which spray poison everywhere. You can see the direction of the wind by the way the snow is blowing. And isn't there also a flag in the area that you can look at? Yeah, so you want to avoid being downwind of his attacks, because they can still hit you. And what you want to try to do, you can just normally shoot this guy like a regular boss if you want. But if you have the sniper rifle, his heart is exposed. But you somehow can't hit it with other guns, right in his center of mass. But you can aim at his heart and shoot it, and it will do extra damage. You'll actually have a stun animation. If you finish him off with the sniper rifle, there'll be a cutscene where Claire says, Now I got you, and then blows his heart up with the sniper rifle. I thought this was the coolest shit ever when I was younger. I have never gotten that cutscene because it is hard to shoot him at all. Because of the poor control. Guess what? There's actually another special cutscene. If you strike him with the knife when he reels back to do his close range attack... Oh, that's the other risk of the boss fight, is he can knock you off the roof. But if you hit him at a specific point, it'll do the same stun animation as if you hit him in the heart with a sniper rifle. If you finish him off with the knife, there's a cutscene of Claire stabbing him in the heart, which also makes his heart explode. 
I have definitely not seen that one either, because I usually just shoot him to death with the machine gun. I do remember the knife one, but I don't remember the sniper one. You kill Nosferatu, and then pull Steve up, and then you get into the snowmobile, and Steve gets to drive again. I don't know why Claire doesn't get to drive anything. She's the one that like has a background in riding a motorcycle and shit. Well, yeah, but that's like a that's a different class of license. You need different certification to drive heavy machinery. <laughs> she doesn't have that. She just has motorcycle license. <laughs> Gotta bite the law in Antarctica. Well, they drive off to head for the base, and then you see Alfred, who's hobbling against the wall. Not dead yet. <laughs> yeah, he opens up a room, and... In it, a capsule opens up, and out walks Alexia. Alfred is glad she's awake, and then he dies. Yep. Also, just to, to make it creepier, Alexia is butt-naked. Yep. Shot in a way that you don't see anything. Still, a little weird. Also, it's worth pointing out, Nosferatu is their mutated father, uh, Alexander Ashford. Yes, Alexander was considered a failure in the Ashford yep. family, who spoiled all the good fortunes of them having any hope of getting recognition through Umbrella, so Alexia injected him with the experimental T. Veronica virus they're working on, and it ran rampant and transformed his body, which is why they locked him up in a dungeon. Mm -hmm. So why Alexia is in cold sleep is she realized Mm -hmm. the virus takes effect too quickly in a regular human body. The temperature is too high. So, she injected herself with T. Veronica and went into cold sleep so the virus would act slowly, and she shows off her powers by summoning giant tentacles that, uh... Erupt from the ice and fuck up the snowmobile, hopefully injuring Claire and killing Steve, but we don't know until later. Because we need to start the second half of the game, which I like to call Chris Redfield's completely clueless rescue where he fights his old boss. (laughs) Because Chris has none of the context that Claire has gotten yep. for the entire rest of the game. Which makes certain scenes pretty funny if you think about it. Yeah, and if you play Code Veronica X, then even knowledge of what Wesker's up to isn't exclusive to Chris. Then. At least in the Dreamcast version, that is the case. All Chris knows is that this is an Umbrella facility and his sister is there. Yeah, that's all he's got. Chris arrives at Rockport Island and immediately meets Rodrigo, who is severely wounded because he was on an island that exploded completely. And he got shot earlier, still. And he has a quick talk with Chris and says, like, he's familiar with Claire. Says, oh, she probably escaped this island. Everyone did. There's nothing left. You should just get out of here. And then the gulp worm appears out of the ground and eats Rodrigo. Yeah. Rodrigo, man, gets the fucking rawest deal. Except for the part where he works for Umbrella, he's not exactly a bad guy. And then he gets punked out by, like, one of the, like, stupidest-looking enemies. Yeah, Carlos worked for Umbrella, technically, and he didn't have anything bad happen to him ever, except for that his teammates got killed by his jerk boss. Again, like, but he was a good guy who just, like, wasn't informed of what Umbrella was really doing. But it worked out okay for him. Rodrigo is the low-wage, non-mercenary glamour version as a prison guard on a backwater island. Anyways, so you can finally have a boss fight with Gulp Worm. You can also try to leave. Um, There's an elevator on the other side of the boss arena, but you have to wait for it to arrive. So you have to hold out. But you have access to the item box. So if you had any guns left over from Claire, you can take them immediately. Yep. Also, there's a weird 
ceremonial thing that says if you offer me a flame, I will grant you power or something like that, and it's a grate with some machine guns behind it. Mm-hmm. But where are you going to get a lighter? Well, in either case, if you kill Gulpworm, it'll spit Rodrigo out. If you did it quickly enough, he'll still be alive, you know, burning from stomach acid. And rapidly dying. Yep. <laughs> but not dead yet. He'll hand you the lighter and say he can join his family again, and then he dies. Because <laughs> also his entire family is dead, because his life isn't enough of a tragedy. But yes... Again, in the like the first step in the adventure of Chris, who has no fucking idea what's going on, he gets handed his own lighter back by a dead guy. <laughs> so you can use the lighter to get the submachine guns. I don't think you really use it for anything else ever again. Like, this is the reward. Yeah, really, not much. Oh, and if you want to use the detonator in the Antarctic The base. detonator as well, yeah. So this is the only real use you'll get out of it. What, you're saying you don't want 60 handgun bullets in the last quarter of the game? Yeah. Where you have all of the other guns with a shitload of ammo over them? Chris's thing, it's a whole lot of puzzle solving. The base has blown up, and so a lot of rooms are obviously pretty rearranged. It is the least impressive self-destruct in any Resident Evil game. This base is mostly intact. Yeah. Mostly just unharmed. Occasional things are on fire and some walls are gone. It's mostly just still standing. Compare this to Resident Evil 1, where the mansion fucking nukes, to Resident Evil 2, where a giant train explodes, Resident Evil 3 where a city is nuked, and Resident Evil 4 where a fucking island explodes. <laughs> Things blow the fuck up in these games, and this is just like a, like a firework. And I mean, Rodrigo was fine. Did he even, like, I guess he probably knew that the self-destruct wasn't that impressive, which is why he didn't try to leave outside of being wounded. It's like, ah, I'll be fine. Yeah, my guess is, like, Alfred was like, I'm gonna get a self-destruct sequence, it's gonna be really cool. But he didn't have a lot of money, so he's like, eh, fuck it. Or he, like, executed the workers before it was actually finished. Fuck it, I'll just buy some yeah. fireworks. It's all about the grand spectacle. <laughs> actually, also, the underwater airport is untouched. Exactly. There are whole parts of this island base that aren't damaged at all. They have the 4th of July. <laughs> yeah, there's just a bunch of sort of puzzle-solving work. Yeah, there's a lever in the basement with the shotgun on it. Uh, when you take the shotgun off, it raises the staircase next to it, so you can't quite take it out of there. Well, actually, you very easily can, because there's a shortcut back to the save room, but you need the stairs. It is a minor inconvenience at best. Which is also strange, because if you play other Resident Evil games, the shotgun becomes like a mainstay. It's really important. This shotgun kind of sucks. It's still decent for dispatching the enemies that the shotgun's been traditionally good against. It's still good against hunters, and it will still one-hit kill zombies. Yeah, if you aim at their heads. But it just doesn't do a lot of damage. Like, compared to, like, exactly. the, uh, you know, the super shotgun in Resident Evil 2, which ripped zombies in half. Also, they tone down the uh, the gore in this game, at least in some versions of it, I think. I think all. I don't know if there's any version where the, a zombie's head actually gets blown off of its body. Yeah, it still has the gore, like, flying everywhere, like when you shoot a zombie's head off in the older games, but their head is still intact. You'll probably want the shotgun, because there's a cutscene of someone watching you on the monitors. And I guess since we already discussed this cutscene thanks to Code Veronica X... 
This is in the Dreamcast version, the first time you would see Wesker. You don't see his face, but I mean, it, it's so yeah. obviously him. If you have played Resident Evil 1, you'll be like, oh, it's Wesker. Uh, we had it, my brother and I, We, because his face is also on the title screen. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, it is. He has these little camera robot drone things that he sends out, and then he unleashes the hunters onto the island. So yes, the hunters are there because Wesker's a dick. Yeah. That's the only reason. It's a pretty solid reason. Yeah, his team brought them. Also, I guess Wesker never left the island, so he's been here the whole time after attacking it, too, after the self-destruct sequence. Yeah. There is a thing that we glossed over in the first um, cutscene with Alfred. Also, Rodrigo mentions it in the very first cutscene in the game, which is that the island has been attacked. The island has been invaded by something, and that's caused the zombies to show up. That's something we learn right now is Wesker. Yeah. Wesker has just straight up ass- assaulted the island with the T-Virus and hunters. Well, the T-Virus was uh, on the base. It was unleashed. Well, he caused it to escape. Yeah, there's actually a um, sterile room in the basement where it seems like that's the location it leaked from. The first place you get attacked by the hunters, which makes it seem like they're specifically protecting this, is there's a door in Claire's section that's missing a doorknob, so you can't open it. But if you get there in Chris's section, if you examine it, doorknob is written with capital D and capital K, so you know it's an item now. And that's what <laughs> triggers the hunters to attack you, is they're protecting this valuable doorknob. It's wonderful. So the robot appears and scans Chris and sets off an alert. And then you get the cutscene from first person of something jumping through the facility, uh, which is also done in game, which is probably the biggest show of the camera. Yeah, yeah it's recreating a, a thing that had been a, a pre-rendered cutscene in Resident Evil 1. Yeah, and then it jumps down into where Chris is, and it's a hunter. They're back in Resident Evil 1. They're lizard things that run on two legs at high speeds and jump and slash at you. If you are a little bit injured, they have access to a high damage attack that will probably kill you in one hit. Yeah, in older games it shows them as jumping across the room and decapitating you, but in this case it just seems to hurt a lot and kill you. You want to use the shotgun or the submachine gun. Yeah, even though the shotgun does not as much damage as it used to, it still does the thing that it always did on hunters, which is knock them the fuck over. Which is very useful. Also, actually, if you have acid rounds for the grenade launcher, that's their weakness. But other things like bosses are also weak to that. If you have leftovers, though, I know Chris will get better weapons for his bosses. The ones he even has to fight in the first place, which we're going to get to in a second. There are at least two that I can think of that he does not have to fight at all. Uh, The first of which is coming soon. Yeah. There's a puzzle you have to solve where you need to set the temperature of a chemical, which, like, in-game, it's rendered differently from all the other chemicals in the cabinet. Like, it's really frustrating to be like, oh, these chemicals all look the same to me, <laughs> except the bright green one in the middle. Mm-hmm. It's also weird that they did this, because that's one advantage of having all the environments be polygonal in this game, is that interactive objects don't have to look different from the background objects. But they still did that with this one. Yeah. Well, it's to distinguish items looking different from things that aren't collectible. Yeah, but for this puzzle, it's all stuff stored in a cabinet. Like, they could have just had it look different when you made it look different, which is the point. You need to set the temperature to the date of the 
facilities founding, which is in a different room. This actually stumped me. Uh, I've played this game a few times, but it stumped me in my last playthrough because I forgot that it is not in a file. It is actually just in the world in a thing that you can examine. <laughs> I straight up couldn't find it for like a half an hour. Yeah, this is the first of two places that stumped me. We will get to the other thing later, and I will have words about it. <laughs> So you solve this puzzle, you get the chemical, which is needed to dissolve the portion of the blue emblem you used earlier to get just the axe part, which in the cutscene where Alfred goes into his um, hairier hanger, he used a little golden axe key. So that's what you're trying to get as Chris, which is weird because Chris wouldn't really know that, but whatever. He sees the door with the axe imprint. He's been in a Resident Evil game. <laughs> he, he knows that he needs to melt things to make items. He's like, this is a fucking umbrella facility. I need to combine garbage with other garbage to get the piece of garbage that I need. <laughs> you get the chemical, and that's when it introduces a variety of hunter. It's a sweeper. It's a big, shitty purple hunter that can poison you. Yeah, if you were having a tough time with the hunters with their rapid close-range attacks, now you can have a tough time with their rapid close-range attacks and the poison you have to deal with after you kill them. There's a blue herb in this room, I think, specifically for that reason. There's 11 types of hunters. They are the biggest success Umbrella's had with bioweapons. I don't know why they just stopped after they made hunters and said, let's sell these. These work. Well, because of Resident Evil 5's backstory, where it's like Spencer wants to change everything in the world so that he could be God. Yeah. But that's another game. Yep. <laughs> with a very different Chris. Yeah, you... You know, hopefully survive this encounter. You can enter the um, room where Alfred tried to shoot you with his sniper rifle poorly, because you used a blue emblem there, but it falls into a sewer below, and then you hear an electric shock noise. What could that be? You can also go into the basement and finally use those upgrade parts for Chris's handgun, which make it not noticeably better for most players. Isn't it like it has a higher chance of headshot? Well, it normally doesn't have any chance, I think. It gives it a chance to randomly do as much damage as the Magnum. Ah, that's it. Which sounds great, but when I mean random, I mean probably not. In that it happened, like, twice when I was playing this a month ago. Yeah. they also kind of lazy about the graphical change, because the icon in your inventory is the Glock at an angle, and if you go to examine the item, it's the same model. It just starts off at an angle. Yeah, it's just tilted up. Honestly, you're probably better off just using the custom handgun Claire had. Yeah, but you may have left that on Claire. Finally, you get the cutscene that a lot of people were probably waiting for back in the day on the Dreamcast. When you go through a cold storage room, I think this is where the tyrant was kept. You're about to just leave through the room, when all of a sudden you hear, Long time no see, Chris, and it's Wesker. And this is where yeah. he reveals everything he's been up to for people who played the original version. Instead of earlier, where he says it's a Claire. Yeah. At the X version. Yeah. He uh, beats the crap out of Chris at super speed. Wesker says he's looking for Alexia and has found out that she's in the Antarctic with Claire. He's ready to kill Chris, and then a screen pops up with Alexia on it, and he just freaks out and throws Chris into one of the cold sleep chambers, which, like, cracks it open, and a bandersnatch comes out. So you get to fight that as Chris. The last one, thank goodness. Thing to know, oh, the yeah. name of the bandersnatch's theme is Pulsating Right Arm. <laughs> it's also the most, like, 
ridiculously over-the-top music in this It's movie. really... Yeah. Oh, also, we skipped over something else. The cutscene where Wesker's revealed uh, sending out the hunters. It also has Alexia. Yeah, Christy's a monitor, and it's broadcasting Alexia in the Antarctic base. She's cradling the head of Alfred, singing a song about a nice king marrying a mean yep. queen. It's the song. With lyrics. For the clueless Chris count again... Chris suddenly is treated to a naked woman cradling a dead guy in a military outfit singing a song. Uh, I think uh, Alexia's put on a dress at this point. You see most of Alexia, but you don't see what Alfred is wearing, so Chris has no idea how Alfred is dressed. He's just like a toy soldier. Yeah, he has a bunch of medals that I don't think he earned. They're uh, like pop caps or whatever. He ordered them from a catalog or some shit. <laughs> Well, one of the nice things about it being an older game where the metals are a texture on his jacket is you can just imagine they're just woven patterns on his jacket. Yeah, it's like having one of those tuxedo shirts. <laughs> only they're alternate costumes. <laughs> uh, and it's on that scene where Wesker's like, oh, Alexia's awake, and then he sees Chris on the monitor, which is why he unleashes the hunters. But yeah, so now Wesker's run off to try and get to the Antarctic because he was reminded that Alexia's awake, which he already knew. Now you finally go to the underwater airport. And there are zombies with explosives strapped to them, which I guess are the remains of Wesker's Special Forces team. Mm -hmm. And if you shoot them, you might need to hit them from a certain angle, but their explosives will go off and kill other zombies around them. If you're standing next to the zombie, it'll probably kill you. Yeah. But also, they do have this neat effect where they're wearing night vision goggles, and it does the same thing as Wesker's eyes did in that cutscene that was added in X. Yeah, they have little light trails. They're, they're a nice touch. They shake things up with the zombies a bit. Especially since they get, like, five introduction sequences. Oh, no, zombies, still. Yeah, these zombies don't get any kind of introduction, which is weird because they're actually different. Maybe they would introduce them to him? First thing he sees is Gulpworm, so all bets are off, right? In all fairness, the cutscene where Gulpworm eats Rodrigo, it focuses on his shocked face for, like, a good second. You need to get some items in the airport to get the key that'll take you to where the emblem is. Also, when you go in there, there's a collapsed tunnel within there. Well, it looks like it's been sort of blocked off. And I'm pretty sure that's the tunnel that Alfred, like, collapsed to bury all the workers in that built the private house. So I, I kind of like that bit of detail. And you go down towards the um, pool where the emblem fell, and you get a cutscene for a boss? Hey, remember that thing we talked about for like a couple <laughs> seconds earlier? The albinoid? And we laughed at it? It's just a little shitty salamander, basically. It is a boss that has two attacks. It electrifies the water that it is swimming in, and it will rush at you and try to just kind of bash you. Both of these only work when you are standing in the water, and the only reason to get into the water is to get the emblem. Neither of these attacks are even close to one-hit kills. Yeah. They do barely any damage. So what you can do is jump into the water, wade over like it's a fucking kiddie pool, grab the fucking emblem, and leave, and not have to deal with him at all. Basically, like, the last rival fight in Pokemon is like... Now fight my Magikarp with Thunder. Fucking okay. <laughs> I mean, if you want to fight this thing, it's actually a huge pain in the ass, because if you want to shoot it from out of the water, you can't really hit it at the like 45-degree angles your character aims at. You have to sort of fire when you're in between angles, which 
you can't really see where it is, so that's difficult. Or you can get in the pool and shoot at what electrocutes you. Have fun. There is no reason to deal with it. Yeah, also this boss fight has kind of dramatic music, which is totally wasted on this. Yeah, it only shows up here. It is pointless. <laughs> so yeah, you take the emblem and you leave, and you don't fight the emblem, because why? And then you melt the emblem and get the axe. Also, in the hallway, where that save room is in the axe door, you get a cutscene for the spiders, but you've already been introduced to them at this point, so that's not a big deal. You go into the Harrier hangar and plays a cutscene automatically. And luckily, Alfred has a backup Harrier in his private Harrier hangar. Well, that's obviously the Harrier for Alexia. <laughs> they just go on Harrier flights together. I wouldn't doubt it. Plays the theme from Afterburner. <laughs> so then you get to fly automatically to the Antarctic. I guess there were coordinates in or something. I doubt Chris just got in a Harrier and was like, Oh, the Antarctic. Let me just fly to the entire Antarctic. Where is it? South. <laughs> There's probably coordinates in it, but out of the two characters, the three characters in this game that fly planes, Chris's backstory is that he was in the Air Force, so he knows how to fucking fly a plane. Even though he was improbably young when he was in the Air Force. But Jill was even younger than him. That's true. Especially compared to Steve and Alfred, <laughs> who I don't think either of them can fly an airplane. <laughs> I mean, that implies that Alfred can do something competently. Well, he can't do anything anymore, because at this point, he's fucking dead. <laughs> yeah, he's done. So, you get to the Antarctic phase. In the last quarter of the game, we are almost done, but also there's going to be so much shit to talk about in this yeah. last quarter of the game, because the first quarter and the last quarter are the most packed. Yep. So, Alexia's tentacles are just out now. Shoot them a lot with whatever you've got. Fire grenades are the best. Stuff is mostly rearranged in the areas that you saw flood in the cutscene. Because now they're covered with ice. It's like Mr. Freeze showed up. <laughs> yeah, so if you go back into the center room where the shipping facility was, which is now covered in ice, there's a spider under there. You see it under the ice, it's kind of there as like a, a threat. Also, there's a room with a fire extinguisher refill. Hope you have that. Yeah. Hopefully you brought Chekhov's fire extinguisher, and now you can put out the fire. And also set off the detonator and <laughs> hide behind some missiles and get you <laughs> fucking 60 rounds for the garbage gun that you don't use anymore. These 60 handgun bullets are past the magnum. So you can get that. It cuts through rows of zombies and kills them in one hit. Does it kill hunters in one or two hits? I don't know. I don't use it on hunters. I wait to use it on bosses. You have enough to not just use it on bosses. Really, there's only, like, two or three bosses, depending on how you fight them yeah. left anyway. Yeah. This also makes zombies' heads explode, but not actually. Uh, you need a key to operate a crane, because you see... Well, you can tell it's Alexander under the ice, Nosferatu. His necklace has a gem on it. You, want. you don't know you need it yet. Well, I mean, other than that it's a sparkly thing in a Resident Evil game, you don't know why you need it yet. Yeah, so you need a key for that. Otherwise, there's not much to do in the old base. Oh, you can also use the axe to open up a drawer in the save room Claire used. I keep saying axe, just a reminder, it's it's tiny. It's a little drink umbrella. Yeah, not the Astroth one. <laughs> but that will show up again. It will. Once you can cut through the other side doors that you can reach because of the ice, there's a bunch of power 
room puzzles in the way. But, you know, you turn the power back on, whatever. You glazed over a thing. You turn on the power or whatever. That is important, that you turn on the power for a thing that I will be mad about later. Oh, yeah, fair <laughs> enough. In this next area, there's the mansion from Resident Evil 1. It also has a part of another room from the mansion that was not located there, which is that tiger statue that would rotate and there'd be snakes that dropped on your head if you fucked it up. But it works differently in this game. For a puzzle, a little bit later, you're going to need both the gems from that. Yeah. But with the power on, its head will rotate when you take one of the gems, making the other gem inaccessible. Because Chris can't, like, two-hand the son of a bitch. <laughs> like, he can't just take both at once. And if you take one out of one side, it'll turn and you can get an item. One of them has magnum rounds. The other has... Oh, right. So, remember how you used a crank earlier to shot the poison gas? First things first, if you go there and get the crank, it's a cutscene. Another oh my gosh zombies cutscene where the zombies come out of the ice and Chris looks concerned for some reason. Oh, not zombies. Last one of these in the game. I guess they thought it was cool that the zombies came out of the ice, but they could have just... It could have been like not a cutscene, just like a spooky, oh shit yeah, zombies. Like, what, are they coming out of the ice? Like that, yeah, that would work. You get a fucking valve. The same one that you used earlier. It was originally a square valve that you cut into an octagonal shape with a machine to fit that valve. But now, you need a square... <laughs> a square valve again. And you can't, like, recut it, because the machine's broken, and also that's not how objects work in the real world. Nope. If you, you cut more things off of them, then it'll work. So you need an adapter to make it a square again. You turn the figure statue one day, and there's a Frank Square Adapter. Shh, of course there is. As if this was all planned out ahead of time. Like, there couldn't even be an interstitial step where it, the adapter end only fits on one kind, so you have to make it like a circle or something. No, you just you got it right. Honestly, despite all the ridiculous shit in this game, I find this the most ridiculous because it looks mundane but actually has no basis in real-world logic. Everything else looks ridiculous, so it's fine. Also, if you go into the backside of the stairs of the mansion, there's Claire, strung up in a bunch of goo for some reason, and you need a knife to cut her out. Uh, but this, though, is a point that will change something if you do this in a different order. You can actually get the key for the crane to get Nosferatu out of the ice before now. And if you do that, there is a bonus cutscene that you will not get later that I have not seen, so Sid will describe it. <laughs> right, Alan, it's great. Because if you normally pull Nosferatu out of the ice after you do this scene, then Chris just sees him come out of the ice and is shocked at how poorly he was treated or something. But if you do it before you free Claire, then Alexia is there. And she does a ridiculous laugh and then says... Send the spider to the fly. How do you wish to die? Ooh. Oh, did we cover the ridiculous dolphin laugh? No, they they both laugh in a weird way. But yeah, Alexia has the same terrible sense of humor as her brother when he said he could join you in your descent to death. Yep. It makes it hard to buy that she's a genius. I guess she's book smart. And so she pieces out because the giant spider that's under the ice will leap out and smash the operator's booth. 
now here's another boss fight question mark because again all you need is alexander's brooch and then you can leave no reason to fight this giant spider no reason to come through this room ever again so nope. <laughs> this thing is it's just a more dangerous bigger spider and also, if you use a high-power weapon and shoot it from behind, you can blow up its butt, and then tons of tiny baby spiders come out, which uh, stun you if they jump at you. So it's just kind of randomly you get stunned. But if you run over them, they get smashed. I don't know. Whatever. Don't fight this thing. It's another fight that's actually easier to run from. If you've unlocked like, an infinite ammo weapon or something, that's kind of fun to this thing to smithereens. It's not like sticking and fighting Nemesis. It's, it's really not fucking worth it. It's a lot like the, the spider boss Black Tiger in Resident Evil 1, where it's a, not really a thing. There's also one other thing you can do before you rescue Claire. There's a little dice object you get. That's what you need the axe for in the save room. Oh, yeah. There was also handgun bullets in there, though. Right. But there's a giant novelty dice with a symbol on it, and you can go into the room where Alexia was. Actually, also on the way to that room, there's a giant flying ant hive. Yeah, because remember the video that you've been shown twice now with the song, where they're feeding the dragonfly to a bunch of ants. And there are several notes throughout the game that talk about how Alexia wants to be an ant queen. Yeah, she just loves ants. Also, the T. Veronica virus was derived from ants. Yeah, if you go to one side of the of the hive room, there's a, room, a smaller room with a dead queen ant in it, which they combine it with the progenitor virus that the T virus was derived from and everything, and that's how they made T Veronica. But the other side is the uh, cold sleep room. There's symbols on the panel, and the dials has those symbols, and you want to use the one on the opposite side, which is an okay use of the item rotation. I mean, I guess that's usually what people do with those kinds of puzzles. It's literally just a rotate-the-thing puzzle. It's not difficult, and it tells you basically what to do when you examine the thing that you need to input the code on. <laughs> so you put in the code, and then you have to put the die in. Just put it in here. It's not useful anymore. Then out of the sleep chamber, Alexia stuffed Alfred's body in there, so Chris sees what Alfred's wearing for the first time. Again, he has not really much idea who Alfred is. Just a dead guy falls out of a tube. Yep, and then you take... His ring? Yeah. Chris loots a corpse. <laughs> right. Oh, and it was Alexander's earring that you took out of his brooch. Anyways, you rescue Claire, finally, and whether the next cutscene happens immediately or not is dependent on whether you got poisoned by Nosferatu as Claire. If you didn't, it just goes right on in the next cutscene. If you did, you need to backtrack into the room that's on fire where the Magnum was and get you some serum that's just there. And then you give that to Claire, and she's fine. And then Alexia shows up and taunts them, and so Chris and Claire rush after her on the stairs. But then a tentacle busts out of the wall and smashes the stairs, and Chris falls and injures his leg. Claire also tells Chris when she wakes up, finally, that she was captured alongside someone named Steve. Chris like, who's Steve? And she says, a boy I was captured with on this island. Even though Steve's a teen, yeah, he's a boy. The two things he, we know for sure that Chris knows about Steve in this game are that Claire says he's a boy that I met on the island and is here with me, and then he hears his sissy scream 
when <laughs> after the tentacle smashes the uh, staircase. So for all we know, Chris thinks that Steve is eight yep. because the That's last it. person that Claire escaped from a place with was Sherry Birkin. Not a bad assumption. <laughs> <laughs> so now you're back to playing as Claire. You get into another save room and you can equip Claire again. This is kind of a tough decision point to uh, decide like what guns Claire should have, because you don't know how long you're going to be Claire, and you don't want to take any options from Chris. Uh, and there's actually a bookshelf you push aside, and there's a shotgun rack in this room with some grenades. I guess at this point you actually probably should take the grenade launcher, because Chris has plenty of weapons. I mean, this is foreknowledge for this area, but you don't really need to fight anything. There are some tentacles in your way, so you'll probably want to use them flame runes. Well, you could just bring straight up just the handgun, because you're not going to use it. That's true. Yeah, you can also bring the handgun. Well, there's an upcoming sort of boss that uh, having a strong weapon helps with, if you don't want to use up too many healing items. It is a boss that you have to run from. But if you don't want to use first aid sprays, because those lower your rank. Even then, I, I had plenty of healing items at this point in the game, but that was just me. Maybe I was playing better than usual. Yeah, I mean, I was kind of coughing going back into it, so I did underprepare. Because, yeah, when I played this game when I was younger, I played it a shitload. Like, I knew this game back and forth. Take whatever you know that you're not going to use as Chris. So you have to kill some tentacles in some hallway, and then you enter another dungeon, which has a giant slab on a chain that slams the ground, and a cannon. Like a medieval cannon. Time for the goofiest puzzle in Code Veronica. You turn the wheel on the cannon to tilt it down, and a glass ball with a key card comes out, and that activates the crusher. So you need to pick up the ball, place it under the crusher, and have it slam the ball. You need to make sure you are not fucking killed when this thing falls down, which is harder than it sounds. Especially if you're like me and my brother and you didn't know about the quick turn, because stepping backwards is not fast enough. So anyway, it slams the ball, and then you pick up the card, and once you step off the panel, you hear a click and the device stops. I feel like this is another thing that was used as inspiration for some of the goofy-as-fuck rooms in the Salazar castle in the in the next game. Like the pendulum room, the two times where there's <laughs> yep. a fucking ceiling coming down on you. Yeah, honestly, the Ashfords are just kind of the Salazars on a budget. Yeah, basically. You need that key card. It also has a document with it, which tells you about the self-destruct device and how that will activate the emergency override and unlock all the doors in the facility. And the code for the self-destruct signal is the name of our great matriarch that founded the Ashford family. It's Veronica. Code Veronica. Yes, it's also on the box for the game. (laughs) If you can't think of what it is, pretend you're fucking playing Metal Gear Solid 1 and look on the box. (laughs) You use the keycard to go into the room. Steve's there. He's got the giant axe over him that Claire can't move. And Steve says that that crazy woman said that she was going to do the same experiment to him that she did on her father. And then Steve transforms. He looks like a villain that the Incredible Hulk would fight but not beat. 
Also, though, Tyrant Steve still has Steve's hair. He has his fringe. His emo fringe redhead. Despite turning into, like, again, a Hulk villain, he still has his terrible, crappy haircut. And still, his face still looks the same, except green. Oh, his mouth is, like, in a default kind of open state that looks like he's about to say something. Owen Wilson makes that face a lot, so that's not scary. It's in the Code Veronica X notes right here that Steve's hairstyle changed between the original and X. Yeah, they made it fringier. Yeah. Yeah, it just says notable, noticeable fringe. <laughs> they made it a whole year to implement that fringe. So, anyways, this is a boss fight where you can't kill the boss. If you try, he will fucking kill you. Yeah, you just get a fucking body. Steve picks up the giant axe and will slash at you and... <laughs> basically gets a free hit. And what's probably, like, the showiest aspect of the boss fight is as you run away, this, like, knight armor lining the sides, and he smashes through all of it as he chases after you. His attacks are really, really dangerous. They, they straight up put you into danger. Yeah. You can't survive more than one hit. Yeah. You can't even try to fight him as a joke. You actually need to bring... At least one, probably two full healing items with you to this. I guess that's the other reason why you might bring the grenade launcher, because it will stun him, giving you a chance to run. So if you are out of healing items, hopefully you have some kind of high power weapon you can stun him with. If you are out of healing items, you are fucked anyway, because the last boss is really hard. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, you run away, and so Steve's bashing on the bars, and then he finally breaks through and runs up to Claire, and then a giant Alexia tentacle pops out of the wall and holds Claire in place. So he winds up, and he swings, but then he stops just short of Claire's neck, and you hear him in his awful Tyrant Steve voice like, Yeah, it sounds terrible. <laughs> it sure does. And then he slices through the Alexia tentacle, and the remaining half just slams into his chest with its acidic blood. I don't know why this is so damaging to him, considering... He can survive everything else you throw at him. Uh, but yeah, it slams into his chest and throws him against the wall, and he de-transforms, mostly. He goes all Bruce Banner again, yeah. and is naked. Those skin's kind of, like, not back to normal. It's sort of still a gross green color. It's like a pale green. So he finally looks like the way he really is. It's disgusting. Pretty goddamn disgusting. And this is when... Steve reveals that he loves Claire. Oh, what? And then Claire does not respond and <laughs> lets him die. And then just kind of cries, yeah. I guess. <laughs> and there's, like, the most ridiculously sappy oh, music. That sounds like something that would be in a sad cutscene in a Persona game. Then it cuts back to Chris. And it looks like Alexia's back, but she's not focused on Chris. She's being talked at by Wesker. This is another one of the scenes that was changed in X. Yes, pretty considerably. In the original version, it was much shorter, and I've only played X, so you explain what happens in the original <laughs> scene. Okay. Wesker's talking to Alexia and says, The last remaining copy of the T. Veronica virus is in your body. I want it. <laughs> And then she just sort of taunts him. Then you get a cutscene of her walking down the steps slowly, and her body catches fire and her dress burns off, but it's okay, because she mutates 
in probably what is the least disgusting transformation in any Resident Evil. She turns into a Parasite Eve character. She just looks kind of like a sexy Medusa type thing, honestly. She doesn't really come out of it very poorly, but, you know, she doesn't have nipples now, so it's okay that she's totally naked. A-okay. Also, when she's transforming, her necklace snaps off and goes flying off to the side. And that's the last gem you need. She walks up to Wesker, who's in awe of this, slaps him in the face, and he goes flying against the wall into the door. Then he tries to attack Alexia again and just gets slapped to the side. Yep. Alexia sees Chris and gets distracted, and that's when Wesker runs out the door. And so she flicks her blood against the door and, like, it creates a flame barrier. That's one of her powers, is she can flick her blood and it creates fire. In X, though, the scene is longer. <laughs> it still does the part all the way up through when her clothes burn off. But Wesker does not get his shit wrecked in this <laughs> version. He instead actually does, like, some Matrix fighting, where he, like, runs along, like, a wall and jumps off and does some kind of Street Fighter move on <laughs> Alexia's face. He does get lit on fire at one point, but he, like, puts it out in a kind of goofy but also kind of cool yeah. way. But he still does not want to fight her, so he says, Chris, you were always my best man, so why don't you take her on? And then he just leaves. She just fucks off. Now you get a boss fight. Why is that the music and theme think it's kind of operatic? Like, this is that completely. This is the peak. The whole point of this boss fight is just avoiding... The blood she flicks, which creates, like, fire that you can't go past, so you don't want to get zoned out of not being able to run away from her, because if she catches up to you, she will grab Chris by the head, lift him off the ground with one hand, and light his whole body on fire and you die. It is a one-hit kill in the most cinematic way possible. It looks pretty cool, but then you're dead. Don't worry if you don't see it in this part. There's a part where you're almost certainly going to see it later. <laughs> you pick up the brooch and you use the gems from all three Ashford family members on a painting in the middle of the stairs to open up a secret door and they'll take you to the hallway that Claire ran through and fought the tentacles in. As soon as you exit this room from any of the doors, though, you get a cutscene of Alexia getting back up. She's not dead. And it plays music that lasts for, like, uh, five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> also, the Alexia boss fight's a good one to save the Magnum for, because it takes exactly six shots to put her down. It is the most useful the Magnum is in this game. So you go back into the dungeon, and there's a cutscene of Chris. He hears Claire crying on the other side of the door. He can't bash it open. He's not Resident Evil 5 Chris yet. He hasn't taken every drug <laughs> Yeah, his arms aren't tank busters yet. Claire slips him the file and the keycard and says, you know, you use the emergency override if you set off the self-destruct. So there's a key that's just a dragonfly, and you need to get four dragonfly wings that are hidden around, and you need to put them back on the dragonfly, and then use that complete key to open the room with the self-destruct device in it. Yeah, in all likelihood, you will have gotten three of them before you even fought Alexia. Also, two of them are actually right next to each other. I'm just going to tell people because it's really kind of annoying. In front of the replica mansion, there's a little carousel and merry-go-rounder 
toy horse, I can't remember what it was specifically, that uh, has a wing by it, but there's also a pool of water next to it, and the other wing is right there in that pool of water, so go get that. The last wing is hidden behind a puzzle that looks like, suspiciously, rooms that you've been in this game before. Maybe because they reuse them. <laughs> it looks like the room from the castle with the music box in it, so guess what? You have to hear the music box twice more. <laughs> oh, yeah. Because they hadn't done it enough. But anyway, for that puzzle, you need both of the tiger eyes. Yeah. You wouldn't think you would need to do this, because it's not how you solve any other puzzle in a Resident Evil game. But you need to turn the power back off. You can use a roundabout route through the mansion to avoid going through the electric door, so you don't need to have it powered back on. Yes, but you need a key to open that, and that key is hidden in a desk that does not have any indication that you can interact <laughs> with it. You have to just kind of click wildly and think, hey, there's a desk, maybe there's something in it. It's weird, though, because remember the eagle emblem at the very beginning of the game I talked about that you need to replicate using that experimental metal? Well... You wouldn't think to check the desk drawer it's in, but you might want to check the computer. So by wanting to check the computer, you open the desk drawer and get the emblem. So in kind of a trick, they let you yeah. find something that you wouldn't think to look for. In this section, there's not really anything like that. That's also a situation where there's not many places you can go at that point in the game, so it's like eventually you would run across it. But this facility is entirely open to you at this point. It could be potentially anywhere. <laughs> next to the self-destruct room. You can see it's right above the hive that you saw earlier, but there's also a gun in the wall that says it's an experimental linear launcher, and it requires two people to turn the two keys on the side of it at once, and then it'll need to charge up and you can use it. Luckily, this game has two protagonists, <laughs> because the person accompanying the first protagonist is dead as shit. <laughs> yeah, you open up the uh, self-destruct room, there's some zombies in here for some reason. Mostly as a way to annoy people who assume that they would only need to bring their most powerful weapons with them. <laughs> because these zombies will just get in the way yeah. if you don't want to use your magnum bullets or exploding crossbow bolts. You go up to the panel and you enter the code. It sets off the self-destruct sequence. And as soon as you get out, Claire runs up to Chris and they are all reunited ready to leave when a giant tentacle deposits Alexia onto the platform. And even though Chris took her down with magnum rounds or something before, his first thought with Claire is that they need to activate the linear launcher. And he knows exactly how to use it for no reason. Turn it simultaneously on three, let's <laughs> go! He says it like a football coach. Yeah. <laughs> Chris's voice acting is fine, really. He doesn't have many emotional stakes. Sometimes his delivery's weird. Like when he first sees Wesker, he's like, What are you doing here? So they turn the key, and then Claire runs to leave, but Alexia's fully awake. Chris is like, I'll take care of myself. You get to the Harrier, which she has no idea of knowing where that is, but she goes anyway. And then the emergency elevators, I think he just tells her to take that. Oh yeah, the emergency elevator. Alexia moves to attack Claire. And you have about two seconds yeah. to fire a gun, any gun, at Alexia. If you don't, Alexia will do that move she did earlier uh, if you fucked up during the boss battle against her. And one hit kill Claire and you have to do it again. 
this is going to screw you over because you think you have to do something special, or it's pointlessly not a threat. And Alexia transforms, and this is the final boss battle. She turns into what looks like a giant anthill with a fucking dragonfly coming out the top of it. Get it! And this boss fight is either really annoying or you end it quickly. It depends on how many arrows you have. This is the reason the gunpowder arrows are definitively better than the magnum. The magnum pierces through enemies and stuff, but the arrows do more damage faster. This is what this boss can do. She can unleash tentacles from her base that slam the ground and do pretty big damage. She can unleash these little mites. You know, these awful little minions that will stun you. They, they will basically stun lock you. They don't do a ton of damage, but they will let her hit you and keep you from firing. Yeah. Also, her slam attacks do poison, which is a thing that most people don't see because they finish this fight pretty quick. But yes, if you get fucked over, you can get poisoned. I think the best weapon for taking out the minion things is a shotgun, but if you're fast enough, you don't have to worry about them. So yeah, use the gunpowder arrows and kill her, and then you get another cutscene. The self-destruct sequence starts burning up the ant hive, and the rest of the ants rush up and eat the base off of her. And she detaches from the hive and is now only like a dragonfly thing. And the linear launcher goes, ding, alright, your toast is ready. <laughs> Fucking grab that thing and shoot yeah. it. And this is the worst section of the whole video game. You have luckily have infinite ammo, but you need to fire at Alexia with a gun whose shots have travel time, where she will intentionally wait for you to fire and then move out of the way. Yeah, she's fast. Yeah, she's flying. She's fast, so she's hard to hit with your other weapons. Also, you need to aim with the linear launcher like you aimed the sniper rifle, which was also a big pile of shit. <laughs> If you didn't use the sniper rifle, then you have no practice on how to handle these first-person scoped weapons, too, so... Sorry. So this is a thing that can either take you about five seconds, or all the rest of the time before the fucking self-destruct goes off and kills you. Also, she she spits acid on you in this form, which mm. makes a weird, like, echoey noise. It sounds like something like, slop, slop, slop. Luckily, you only need to hit once. And then you get a cutscene of her exploding, the explosion knocks just to his feet, and he just drops the linear launcher and doesn't think this infinite ammo laser bazooka is worth trying to pick up again. Also, her exploding is really funny looking. It is the worst animated thing. If <laughs> yeah. you've ever seen the opening cutscene of Blue Stinger, where the guy's face like expands and stretches out into infinity, it is yeah. that. It is that in a Resident Evil game. <laughs> Anytime you've seen an old movie where someone inflates and explodes. Yep. In the original Dreamcast version, Chris gets knocked over, and then rushes down the stairs, gets on the emergency elevator, takes it up, the flames chasing right behind the elevator, and he ends up in the hangar with Claire. There's a step in between that, though, added in Code Veronica X, and this is probably the biggest, most important addition. Yes, the biggest addition the addition that will change the Resident Evil series forever, in my <laughs> opinion. Though, in my opinion, I also consider it a positive change. You may not. Which is that Wesker is a superhero, yeah. basically. Yeah. Chris runs downstairs, and Claire didn't get on the elevator, because Wesker is holding her hostage. And he busts out into a side room, 
Chris chases after her and, like, shoulder checks a zombie that's blocking his path into the submarine dock, where Wesker's submarine is that he took to get from the island to the Antarctic. How did he get here so quickly in a submarine? Well, he seems to show up once you encounter Alexia near the end, so he probably was entranced the whole time. And Wesker and Chris have a showdown. He convinces Wesker to release Claire because of the fight's between them, because he promises to stick around and finish off Wesker four stars. It's his duty as a Stars member, because apparently Stars were samurai. <laughs> also, if you're not familiar, Stars is the team in the first game. Special Tactics and Rescue Service. That uh, investigated the mansion when the fires broke out, and most of them got killed. Though a lot of them also survived. Because Wesker was... Because Wesker was a traitor. So Chris, as a Stars member, takes on Wesker, who's super strong, and Chris tries to fist fight him. It doesn't work. He tries to hit him with the pipe. Wesker just blocks it with his arm. And then he gloats about how he's not human anymore. Oh, but man. look at all the power I wield. <laughs> so Chris is about to get finished off by Wesker, but he sees that there's a big container of I-beams above him. So he jumps and flips the switch. The I-beams slam down onto Wesker. And then Wesker just pushes them out of the way and gets back up. And he's ready to finish off Chris, but then an explosion creates a wall of flame between them and messes up Wesker's face. Which I guess just heals later, because he's fine next time you see him. Hair's untouched, though. He's got, like, super healing. Because Wesker's hair is impenetrable. <laughs> <laughs> so he just guarantees next time we'll finish this. Which means, like, a lot more in between next times before the time you actually finish it. And yeah, I guess Chris realizes he needs to get way more jacked if he wants to punch Wesker. So he needs to train against every boulder in the world. <laughs> You know, if you just kept the linear launcher, you could have blown Wesker up. Anyways, from here on, it's the same. Chris gets to the elevator, and Claire's wondering where Chris is as the entire base is pre-exploding before the self-destruct sequence, as you do. And just as the elevator opens, a blast comes through the elevator shaft and launches Chris through the air onto the nose of the Harrier, which would shatter every rib in his body, but he's fine. You know, especially after getting his ass kicked by Wesker. Then he just says to Claire, hey, I always keep my promises, and they take off. Claire's just like, promise you won't leave me. Well, there's one more thing we need to do. We need to destroy Umbrella once <laughs> and for all, and then they fucking fly off in the sunset, or sunrise, I guess. We're gonna take down Umbrella. <laughs> Wait here, Claire. And that, yeah, nothing <laughs> comes of that. <laughs> yeah, Chris and Jill go to... Siberia or whatever, and shoot some stuff up in Umbrella Chronicles, and Claire doesn't do jack shit. Resident Evil Revelations happens, eventually five rolls around, and uh, Umbrella is taken down by economic reasons. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Resident Evil 4 intro, for being the best thing. <laughs> God, I fucking love how that's the way that the Umbrella is spoken. taken down. That's the best. I love Resident Evil 4. It's so good. So should we put stock <laughs> in the guys who nuked a city? Nah. Well, the government freezes their stock. So like, hey, you are involved in an international incident involving biological weapons, which are illegal. Just a little bit. So the base explodes, and that's the end of Resident Evil Code Veronica. And you get the credits yeah. roll, which in the original Dreamcast version has a super cheesy, like, dating sim or 80s romance ballad-like instrumental behind it. It's really weird. 
the, like, I am the wind alike. Yeah. The X version has, like, an operatic thing that actually is probably the first fitting music for a Resident Evil game. Because all of them have been cheesy rock since the beginning. It's like a fast-paced remix of the Code Veronica theme. It's got, like, bongos and shit. It's great. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. Just shows stills from the game. You know, oh, memories, meeting Steve, Steve dying, my favorite. Ah, good times. Oh, we forgot to mention the greatest threat Wesker ever makes in the whole series. Which is, is he threatens to possibly bring Steve back to life. Yeah, he ends up getting his sample of the virus from Steve's corpse. And since one day he might even come back to life just as I did. Nope. So that's the main game. You unlock one thing for beating the game. Battle mode, which is just like a mini-game. Not as good as the Mercenaries mode from 3, the other game released just before this one. So in yeah, battle mode, you just go through set rooms with specific enemies in each room, and your characters start out with preset weapons, and yeah, you just run through and try to kill them all as fast as possible, not use too many healing items, and each character fights a different last boss. It's alright, I mean... It's, it's a funny... Like, survival horror game combat is obviously not the greatest, but you go to it for sort of the release of being able to use these weapons. Yeah. It's no mercenaries, it's no raid mode, but it's it's fun. It's worth trying out. You get to let loose. Claire gets infinite gunpowder arrows. Chris has infinite magnum rounds. Steve has infinite submachine gun ammo. He also gets to use his gold lugers which are kind of like the M100P, the dual handguns from a while ago we mentioned. They shoot slower, but you can do headshots on zombies with them. And also Wesker, who has just a knife, but he does more damage with it. Yeah. He's like Nikolai from Mercedes and 3. Well, Nikolai also had a handgun. What I mean is he is the badass character who is actually really (laughs) terrible. Yeah, he doesn't run faster or anything. Just makes sense in Resident Evil 5 when you do setups for his hand to hand moves, which kill things yeah. instantly. This is a big, big difference between 4 and 5, where Wesker in the Mercenaries is the biggest badass ever <laughs> who has like a fucking magnum and can punch guys to death. Yeah, and do his sick axe kicks. So, there's one side item though that actually has some story significance. Remember the rat we mentioned earlier? Well, there's a uh, side door you can go into and it takes you to the sort of casino gambling area that was in the palace and there's the uh, slot machine which you can operate and it will have a random item in it. I think sometimes it's a healing item. In some cases it's a weapon so hopefully as Wesker you get the Magnum because his last boss is the first form of Alexia who you don't probably want to fight with a knife. Considering she has the one hit kill close range move. But you can also get D.I.J.'s Diary, which doesn't seem to make much sense at first, until you read the part where D.I.J. is stuck in a locker and is freed by Claire, and then you realize this thing's the fucking rat on the plane fight with the tyrant. The rat prepared the catapults. The rat's like Ada from Resident Evil 4. (laughs) (laughs) He just does all the things for you. The rat ultimately ends up stealing away on Wesker's sub. So, I mean, you get the detail that he was using a sub. He played the original version. Now you know what that's all about. It is very goofy, but not as goofy as Tofu tofu. from Resident Evil 2. (laughs) Is there a shortening for Tofu like Hunk? I don't think so. I think he's just Tofu, 
because he is a sentient block of tofu with a knife. Yeah. One of the reasons I want to discuss Code Veronica specifically for this episode is it kind of got overshadowed because of the place it's at in the Resident Evil canon. Since it's not a numbered title, some people thought it was skippable. Since it debuted on the Dreamcast, which didn't have as much of an install base as the PlayStation, people skipped over it. Even though when Code Veronica came out, it was considered top of its game, Resident Evil 4 changed everything. Mm -hmm. What kicked off Resident Evil 4 being more action-driven was the Resident Evil remake on GameCube not selling very well. But if you go back to that title, like obviously it has a lot of weight because it got re-released recently as an HD remaster, and it sold really well in Capcom's best-selling digital titles to date. So that occupies that place in history for classic survival horror, whereas Resident Evil 4 is the new turn that the series does. The action survival horror. Yeah. Code Veronica kind of faded into obscurity. Most people only know about Steve, which I just thought was so sad that I didn't want people to just think that about it. It's also the last time Chris isn't a buff man. Also, I guess, yeah, it marks the end of the old style of Resident Evil. It's, it's really in between, because Resident Evil 1 and 2, 3 wasn't as bad, but they had voice actors who, like, the characters gesticulated wildly, line deliveries were very strange and robotic. It was distracting. Whereas this one, Steve's exceptionally bad. Everyone else is weird, but they sound human. And there's no massive delays between when they talk in cutscenes or anything. They sound like characters that you would hear in, like, a really campy, dubbed-over foreign horror movie. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely a transition. I mean, the influences for Resident Evil 4 obviously set up where the series was going to go. But I think it's, it's really indicative of its place in history. This game, when it came out, got a 10 out of 10 rating from official Dreamcast magazine. Which sounds like, oh, okay, it's the debut on the Dreamcast, of course. But that magazine was famously pretty harsh. The first online racing game to come out on that console? Big deal for Sega, right? Six or a five out of ten or something? Because it's just not very good. They got a uh, yeah. lot of flack from Sega for that. Speed Demons Online or whatever. There are a fair number of Dreamcast games that are famously not very good, as it turns out. Yeah, Dreamcast magazine didn't play lightly with that. But they gave it a 10 out of 10, because this was a 10 out of 10 game when it came out. The games like Grand Theft Auto 4, I guess, get 10 out of 10s, and that's seen as historically kind of out of date. But it's not viewed now as Resident Evil Code Veronica is. Not poorly, just ignored completely. People don't seem to feel strongly about it if they have many feelings on it. I mean, what do you guys think of Code Veronica now? Uh, well, I don't know. It was the first Resident Evil game I played. Which is weird, because it's also probably the hardest Resident Evil game, at least in terms of the old ones. But I also like it quite a bit. If I had to sort of rank the Resident Evil games, I would put 4 first, but that's because I really like it. Yeah. And then 2, because that has a lot of nostalgia for me, even though it doesn't have a lot of the features that 3 made. Mm -hmm. But then it'd be Code Veronica. I love how goofy this game is. <laughs> it's so just over the top all the time, and I love it. Yeah. How about you, Zen? Well, it wasn't the first Resident Evil for me, as I said. My first one was 3. I really liked it when I played it the first time, but I didn't like it as much as 3, and I do still stand by that, but that's mostly nostalgia. If I had to rank it myself, I'd probably put it as 6th, 4 would be 1st, 3, again, nostalgia, then probably 2... 
Remake Revelations. Resident Evil Gaiden. Code Veronica. <laughs> I like it a lot, but it's got a lot of, like, fucking really good yeah. competition keeping it from being in the top five for me. Yeah, those old games are pretty close. Resident Evil 2 has the advantage of having the two characters who can decide what order you play the game in, so it has that replay. Plus, I mean, I mentioned it has like a super shotgun and super magnum. It's got a lot of toys. And when you can get it with analog controls, like on the Nintendo 64, it's a lot more fun. Resident Evil 3 was developed concurrently with this game. Which explains why it has some features that I think are easier to go back to. Because in Resident Evil 1, 2, and Code Veronica, to like walk on stairs, you have to press a button, and your character will walk up the entire set of stairs. Same thing with ladders or everything. And in 3, you just run on the stairs. Just walk up and down the stairs normally. 3 has a lot of replay value, a lot of stuff to unlock. It has like alternate outfits and special weapons and stuff. It feels the most modern, I think. The thing that kept me coming back to it was, like, I wanted to see if I could fucking fight Nemesis. Yeah. Code Veronica doesn't have a real, like, challenge to experiment with. When I played it on the Dreamcast, I had a, a Game Shark, so I hacked items into Steve's inventory to see what the rest of the game was like with him, because that's really the most experimentation you could get out of it. And I found out a few things, actually. If Steve gets attacked by bats, he has no animation for it, so he just freezes in place, and you have to reset. Steve fires the bowgun really slowly, like slower than the handgun. And also, Steve can't turn off the poison gas in the Antarctic base on disc 2. Yeah, that's the point where you yeah. can't progress anymore. That's the game telling you to stop playing as Steve, even if you're cheating. So yeah, if you want to play Resident Evil Code Veronica, you have a few options. Mm-hmm. It was released on PlayStation Network and uh, Xbox Live Arcade as an HD version. It doesn't really look any better as far as I can tell. Like, it looks normal on an HD screen, but it doesn't look better than the other kinds on their screens. It's basically just a port so that you can play it on something that isn't a PS2 or a Dreamcast. Yeah, it uh, saves your hard drive. It has leaderboards for ranking. It's perfectly competent. I got it on sale. I think $20 is a bit steep. I checked quickly on Amazon before recording, and you can get it for about 4 bucks on PS2, but the GameCube version... Good fucking luck. GameCube version is apparently the third rarest GameCube game that exists. <laughs> yeah, if you want a complete copy, you're gonna be out of a huge chunk of change. I mean, at that point, yes, buy the PlayStation Network version. Actually, though, one of the differences on the GameCube version is... The track cutscene at the beginning, the one I said got changed in the X version to be shots from the intro, they made yet another one for the GameCube version that has a lot of shots of people standing around. Yeah, I don't really know why. Also, the uh, title screen call, when they say Resident Evil, they got the guy that ended up doing Resident Evil 4, 5, 6, who sounds kind of like the Crypt Keeper. Resident Evil Code Veronica is not available in the Resident Evil 6 Anthology Edition, which is kind of annoying, because it's got more plot relevance to the rest of the series than 3 does. You also can't get this game on PC. There's no digital version of it for that. Or physical, actually. Never came out on PC at all. Kind of exceptional. The original ones are PlayStation Classics, so you could get those for PS3, you could play them on a PSP or a Vita. This, yeah, you stuck to console. Unless you use emulation, which, as far as I checked, all versions of this emulate pretty decently. There's also 
the original Dreamcast version, which you can get for 12 bucks. It does require you to own a Dreamcast. It does. Yes, it does. But again, we're talking about people who want to buy a copy of Code Veronica to play now. Again, if one of your options is you can just download it from the PlayStation Network, you could just do that. <laughs> yeah, why well, do I mention these other ones? Because it's more expensive than all options besides the GameCube version. But it's also the easiest option. That's true. It is the most expensive, but it is the easiest. So it depends what you're willing to spend or if you want accessibility. If you have a working PS2, I don't really see any reason to get the PSN version. Yes, if you have a working PS2, just get a copy. It was the greatest hits. Yeah. So there's like a million copies of it. It's cheap. Otherwise, other media for Code Veronica, uh, S.D. Perry wrote more novelizations. She also wrote the other Resident Evil ones. They're infamously pretty bad. Yeah, I would definitely say play the game instead. There was a sequel to the light gun game Resident Evil Gun Survivor called Resident Evil Survivor 2 Code Veronica X, which is really bad. It's worse than the original game, which was a rather maligned PlayStation 1 light gun game with light gun support taken out, so you played it with a controller. If you need a Code Veronica experience with a light gun, just play Dark Side Chronicles. That also comes with a light gun version of Resident Evil 2. Yeah. Yep. So, there you go. Also of a made-up bullshit scenario where Leon and Krauser go on a secret mission. In South America. Well, they're all made-up bullshit scenarios. <laughs> I know, but I'm just saying... But yeah, if you want a sort of condensed experience of Code Veronica, then play Resident Evil Darkseid Chronicles, which was released on the Wii and re-released on the PS3. Darkseid Chronicles has some problems where like, they try to do the shaky camera thing, which is bad for a light gun shooter. Oh god, that is it makes me nauseous, but I think it is a little better than Umbrella Chronicles. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, mostly the opinions seem to level out based on improvements they made in one game versus another. And if it's too tough to play, you can just watch it. The cutscenes and such have higher production value. It's a little nicer of an interpretation in that case. Also, Steve has a different voice actor. I mean, the music's all, like, symphonic and shit. It's pretty good. Yeah, there's that. And if you want to play other survival horror games like it, like I said, Resident Evil 1, 2, and 3 are available on PlayStation Network as PS1 classics. Though Resident Evil 1 is the director's cut, so you get to hear Fart Mansion terrible basement theme. Yeah. Then again, I would say there's really no point to play one, just play Remake. And Remake is out on fucking everything, basically, now. And it's really good. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that about wraps up the show. So, again, thank you, uh, Cogboard, Zen Scissors, for joining me. Yeah, it was fun. I like talking about Resident Evil, fine by me. <laughs> and uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. Keep thinking. <laughs>